Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 57, blueprints for overland motorcycles, pandemonium in trip planning, and on the back of a bike. All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to some people that have helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Anything for, for supporting Adventure Rider Radio and Raw, and in case you don't know, Adventure Rider Radio is another show that we do, weekly show. You can support both shows by going to adventureriderradio.com. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out here, and that's what I'm going to do right now. These people have really helped us out this month. Tom Barry, Alan Liang, Luke Summers, Gregory Deitz, JT Green, David Goyne, Douglas Van Hart, Martin Kubik. Oh, thank you very much. We absolutely appreciate your support. Any support we get for the show, it is built on a model of advertising mixed with listener support to make the whole thing work. So if you're not doing it, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, here we go. Episode 57, Adventure Rider Radio Raw for October 2020. Rolling here, shall we? Anyone not ready? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you are ready. Yep. Yep. the correct answer. Nobody says anything. Recorded live from the Compass Media Studio, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by my regular Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start with Grant Johnson, who is in British Columbia, Canada. Grant, you've been out exploring. I, I think you're you're looking for trails for the hum, are you? Yes, I was done a lot of that i've got a whole stack of new tags for the helmet it's going to be amazing it's just i'm blown away at how much riding area there is so close to where i live i just i had no idea how much good stuff there was out there so i was having a lot of fun on the drz 400e which is my new toy as most people know i think um it's 18 years old but hey it still works it still goes those things are unbreakable yeah, compared to you it's brand new yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a baby. In fact, it could be my grandchild. My great grandchild now. God, I don't even think about it. Oh, just think about age, yes. My mother's 98 this year. It's just, she just keeps blowing me away with how well she's doing. 98. But, uh, yeah. And she still lives on her own and everything. It's amazing. And you still make her work for you, don't you? No. Oh, come I on. Don't. She was doing slides or something for you. Yes. Well, she's finished. She did oh. finish that. She finished that a year or two ago. <laughs> How long did that take her? Oh, eight or nine or 10 years or something. <laughs> but she scanned something like 8,000 slides. Wow. Only a mother would, would do that. Yeah. She said she loved doing it, though, because she'd get to see all these great pictures that she'd never seen. Because, of course, we never do a slideshow at home. <laughs> and there's all these great pictures she got to see of our travels. So that was wow. kind of cool from that way. That is pretty neat. Hey, let's bring in the others. We got Sam Manicom in the UK. Sam, how are you hey, doing? Hey, hello, everybody. Um, yeah, I've had a really good day today. It's um, eight o'clock in the evening and it's pitch black outside. But my day has been a busy one. I bunked off for the day. So instead of sitting at my desk hammering away, as I so often do, um, 
I have been stripping down Libby. I've taken the carbs off and I've stripped them down, ready to to give them a, a sonic clean. And then I'm going to completely rebuild them. So I'm treating her to new seals and jets and diaphragm, the whole lot. It's a long time since it's been done. So um, yeah, she's going to be purring. It's been a good day today. I like getting my hands mucky. So a sonic clean is kind of like a, a spa for a motorcycle? Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> You know, you can use um, carb cleaner and all of that sort of stuff, spray, um, and it does a pretty good job. But there's there's nothing like um, putting it um, the components in a sonic bath, and um, it just gets all of the gunk out of the tiniest little crevices. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, almost like new. Yep. Great inventions that uh, we're coming up with for this sort of thing. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised you're working on your bike that in depth, though, because your bike is on the street. What do you do? Take parts off and take it up to the apartment? Our dining room table is um, now my workbench. What about the smell of fuel? Ah, open the windows. Ah, besides, the smell of fuel is nice, isn't it? Well, I like it. I've I'm, I'm been known to put a dab of diesel behind my ears on, on it, not nights out. But, I, I um, heard that. I'm glad it's not it quite okay. now. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's bring in Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks from Australia. Good morning, Brian and Shirley. Good morning. I am gobsmacked, Sam. Why? What? Your dining room table, if Brian did that, there would you would hear it at your place. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, I've got to say, I was a little little sleepy when you first started talking, and when you talked about stripping down her, and I thought, oh, God, what's she doing to Birgit? Sonic clean. Birgit's sitting very quietly in the background, and um, thankfully she doesn't mind me using the dining table as a workbench. But having said that, I don't mind when she uses it as a workbench either. So um, we just put a good a good cover on it, and um, it's um, well, it's what we got. So just get on with it. Yep, you got to make do. Let's bring in Graham Field. Graham is in Bulgaria, of course. He lives there. Graham, how you doing? Hi, I'm all right. Thanks. I've turned out all the lights in the shed because I don't like being on display through the window. So I've got mood lighting, candles and stuff. And can I open this bottle of wine now? I cannot work it out. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it? You're, you're opening wine? Trying to. I just can't get the bloody seal off. <laughs> Should have done it before, but I didn't want to do it before because I'm trying to pace myself. But I was. I you set up lights in the shed? Sorry? Got some pliers in the shed, mate. Go and get the pliers. Yeah, I've got a calmy lap. got a calmy lap, <laughs> Brian. I can't move. <laughs> Use your teeth. Yeah, it's going to be the next thing. No, what was I going to say? Um, oh, there's something slightly more interesting to say, but I've lost the, lost the plot. Oh, yeah, so I didn't didn't have a drink for 80 days. I drive for 80 days. I really wanted to get to 90, um, but my birthday came, so uh, that all uh, <laughs> went out the window. So... Uh, Having fallen off the wagon now, I intend to stay there in the gutter for as long as I can. Hence, trying to get this bottle of wine open. How many is we take now? <laughs> oh, that's work. Yeah, so this isn't your, you've already had your birthday, so you have already had something to drink. This isn't the desperation of getting into that bottle of wine after 80 days of being dry. No, this is the desperation for getting me losing the knack. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how much money you must have saved over the past 80 days. I mean, you, you well, must know This it. is the thing. Right? Because alcohol is so damn cheap in Bulgaria. That's what brings a lot of immigrants here in the first place. So I wasn't saving any money. So there was no, all I was, I thought, well, what am I going to do with the saving 
of, of not buying alcohol. So I used it on buying organic milk and better chai tea bags. That was all I was saving. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, better for the cows, I guess. Uh, we nearly did it. We nearly did it. I nearly got it. <sighs> I like the way Graham puts his cat on his lap before his bottle of wine. That's very interesting. Here we go, here we go. Come on. Yay! Oh, now the cat's Sam. I'm so glad that's solved. Sam. Yes. Sam, people don't don't put cats on their laps. Cats get on their laps. So Graham has no choice, really. True. Yeah. Well, I've got a I've got an invitation here from uh, BMW Motorrad in Germany. They've asked us, the crew at Raw, to help them reinvent the adventure motorcycle because you know they're they're floundering a bit. They need some help. There's no doubt about it. Brian, you know you ride one. So, what we're going to tackle here is designing a bike for overlanding. Okay, this is for overlanding. Now it can be any any length of time and because some people might be into shorter trips, some into longer trips, whatever the case is. What we're interested in here, and we, we got to narrow it down, we got to keep it, you know, under control. So I think that the top five most important things that you guys think personally for for yourselves that you would want to do or want included in this redesign that BMW is, is asking us to do for them. Now, Sam... I know you know that we were going to talk about this, and you probably put a lot of thought into this. Please don't tell me that you're going to offer up Libby as she sits as the ideal overlanding, <laughs> overlanding motorcycle. No, and unfortunately, Libby's not listening, so I didn't have to worry about that. Um, yeah, no, I, I came up with about 15 different things that I'd really, really like to have um, added on, and that was after I discarded half of the things that were, yeah, it'd be nice to have, but um, not so important. So... One of the things that I would really like to see an overlanding motorcycle is a 500cc, 550, 600cc shaft drive. Um, I just think that that would be a fantastic bike, no dicking around with chains, the right level CC for overlanding. Um, You can do an awful lot with that, lower weight, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, 500 to 600cc shaft drive is my first contribution. Shaft drive, but that that surprises me. Did you find the chain that much of a problem? The, the sprockets and the chain? No, I don't. But having travelled on Libby, um, you know, we we'd be rolling into a camping site or or, or whatever, um, and the first thing we'd be doing is putting the kettle on and making a brew. And other people, the first thing they'd be doing is sitting cleaning chains and oiling and all all the rest of it. And um, I drank a lot of tea and kept nicely rehydrated in comparison. No, it's just that they're so easy. You don't have to do anything with them other than very, very basic maintenance. And I like the simplicity of it. And I also like the fact that it's a lot easier to be changing tires and that sort of stuff when you've not got chains involved. Maybe it's just because I'm lazy, but it's kind of what I got used to. And it's just simple and effective. Um Graham, you're, you're probably the only other chain and sprocket guy here. What do you think of that? Um, obviously, I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, chains are not a hardship. Uh, when, you, when your shaft goes, you, you are shafted. When your chain mm. goes, everyone's got a chain. It's not a problem. So, um, no, give me chain and sprockets any day. I want, and, and, and there's a huge loss of power by changing the direction of rotation with the with the shaft, which is why smaller bikes don't have shaft drives. So, no, I don't want a shaft drive. Give me chain sprockets any day. 
Mm, boy, you're getting very technical there on the huge loss of power. Expand on that, will you? Well, anybody who knows what they're talking about is going to be screaming at their radio now, whatever they listen to it on. But the point is changing that. Um, the reason little bikes don't have shaft drives is because of the extra power needed because you're because of the you're changing the direction of rotation twice, aren't you? Aren't you, Grant? Yes. Because <laughs> generally, except on BMWs. Okay, well, that's because your engine's sideways, but usually you ch- you're doing it. Anyway, I don't really understand technic- the, te- the, the technical side of it, but if you think about it, so it's coming out of the gearbox, then it's changing at 90 degrees. Okay, admittedly, it's not the BMW because your engine's sideways, but it's still changing again direction at 90 degrees for you to to drive the rear wheel, whereas a chain and sprocket, it's all in line. You're Pistons, the gearbox, the clutch, the chain, the rear wheel are all going in the same direction. They're all going in the same direction. So anyway, yeah, I, th- I think but, it's friction too, isn't it, the, the, with the gears? Yeah, so clearly I don't know what I'm talking about, but the point is I'd like to change sprockets because I understand them and I obviously don't understand shaft drives. So what we need to do then, um, Graham, is we need to come up with the ideal motorcycle where you can either have a shaft or you can have a chain and sprocket. Well, you could have a shaft on one side, couldn't you, and a chain of sprocket on the other. Let's change the subject totally here. And, and, um, I'll no, 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 no. You're, both, you're, you're both wrong. God, right. You're both wrong. You're both right and you're both wrong. Uh, look, I, I drive, obviously, a chain, a, a, a um, shaft-driven bike, and I've had problems with it on the road. Um, and Graham's right. You do lose a fair bit of power as it changes direction. That's true. And high-point gear oil is not readily – well, it is readily available, but, you know, you've got to get the right stuff as well. I've had um, um, output seals go. I've had um, had the um, the shaft seize um, because of uh, water getting into the, the tunnel and seizing up the, the gears. But, but, you know, they are convenient. That's true. You both have good points. But – and I don't know why manufacturers haven't even thought of this – um, years ago, they had a fully enclosed chain. And uh, I had a bike that had a fully enclosed chain that I didn't adjust for over 50,000 kilometres because it didn't need, didn't stretch, it didn't wear out, it sat in its own um, grease bath, and it was fantastic. And it would be perfect because you couldn't see the chain and couldn't tell whether it needed adjusting. Until <laughs> <laughs> it's slapping the case. <laughs> No, mate, no, no, no. It's had a little inspection, had a little inspection hole, and you unscrewed that, and you felt the the tension on the chain, and it never moved. Then it was a V twin thousand cc, and it was. And why the hell they haven't done that on a an adventure bike has got me beat. In fact, there was one guy, and I can't think of his name, but he actually built his own enclosed chain case for his chain. It's just it, it's it's just the aesthetics. It's um, it's just um, people want to see things moving. I don't know, get their fingers caught in it and get their toes caught in it, whatever they want to do. Well, it's probably but expense too, me, at the manufacturer's point. You uh, know, it's, it's so a cheap. lot of extra money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I, I, it's, 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 it's so cheap. It's it's a, it's a piece of aluminium around the rear sprocket, and it's two pieces of solid rubber. That's mm. all it is. Yeah, but yeah, that, that is. I, I had a Harley, I had a, uh, an Evo, when would that have been? Uh, early 90s, and that had an enclosed chain on it. And yeah, great in theory, Excuse I me. thought, was that? What's an Evo? Evolution, you know, 1340 blockhead shovelets, uh, blockhead Harley. Oh, right, okay. 
So, yeah, uh, which they would then they start making 84, I think, till about, I don't know, until after that I lost interest when the Twink Pams came out. Anyway, um, so now an enclosed chain. Now, Sam was just saying about ease of changing um, changing tyres or taking off wheels. This one with the enclosed chain was a pain in the ass. And there, it wasn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said it. I remember it had like flexible. So it looked like a. It looked a bit like a gator on your forks. This sort of flexible rubber top and bottom to allow for the play oh, yeah, in the yeah. sw- or the up and down of the swing arm. But it and. So, yeah, in theory, great. Your chain sits there, constantly bathed in oil, never coming in contact with dust or sand or road dirt, but, which is great while it, it doesn't need maintenance. But when it does, or when the wheel needs taking off, it was a pain in the ass. So you've got to try and seal it up again. And uh, that, that yeah, wasn't mate, fun. But, but mate, that's, hang on a minute. That's Harley Engineering. Surely there's an engineer out there who can think better than that. <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue right. with you on that. I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, okay, so um, shafts are supposed to be difficult, but I can whip my back wheel off with um, three bolts. That's it, job done. Um, No straightening, lining anything up or anything else like that. And if I had a a BMW R80 G-Stroke S, then I'd probably be getting around 300,000 miles out of the shaft without there being any problems with it. Um, So the technology is there to do it. Um, it's just simple, straightforward, and why not? But maybe that's just me. Um, I can throw out one uh, corollary to that that's a bit of a problem. One of the things, differences between the G-Stroke S and the GS like you've got is that your swing arm is much longer than on mine. And that introduces other issues. One of the things they're changing on motorcycles from the old days is swing arms are getting longer and longer and longer. And the reason for that is better handling uh, all around. There's a whole raft of technical reasons. Basically, you can assume that your swing arm is going to be getting longer. And with a longer swing arm and longer travel that we have today, the single pivot that the old G-Stroke S had isn't adequate. They will start to fail um, quite badly with that uh, longer swing arm and longer travel. So you run into some issues and it starts getting very heavy and it gets more complicated. And your paralever system is way heavier than the old G-Stroke S system. Oh, absolutely. I don't like the paralever in comparison at all. I've got friends who have literally overlanded on um, their G-Stroke S's um, with those shafts and never, ever had a problem. I've got one friend who's got 450,000 miles on his now. And 180,000 miles of those he did um, as an overlanding trip. So you know, from, from my point of view, that it's just the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. But I fully accept that it's horses and courses and some people love chains and some people prefer shafts. I suppose in part for me, part of the, the comment was the mid-range um, size of motorcycle. And bearing in mind, we're talking about an overlanding motorcycle, not um, a, an adventure motorcycle, because I think that there's a difference I think an overlanding motorcycle is something that is um, simple, reliable, um, fun to ride, not necessarily the quickest or something that you're going to be popping wheelies on, but it's something that's going to be absolutely reliable and friendly to use and competent in any road condition that you want to throw at it. Wow. Yeah. I'll go along you, with that. You guys are just messing issue. up the whole industry now by, by fracturing this. So now what we're talking about <laughs> is, is we're going to have adventure motorcycles and overlanding motorcycles. This is just getting too yep. complicated. Yeah. I think it comes down to I think the we need issue to be, that Sam's is that 
is getting it to sell on the floor and how many overlanders are there that are smart enough, and I probably shouldn't use that word, but are discerning enough to differentiate between the popular adventure motorcycle and a true overlanding motorcycle and how many of the manufacturer will actually sell. And it's not very many. What were you going to say, Grant? Yep. I was just saying, I thought we could try and be unanimous on this and perhaps bring Sherl in it into this and Sherl, you know, shaft or chains. <laughs> Cheryl's not here at the moment. She's dealing with a cat who tried to get on to the computer <laughs> and shoo the cat off the computer. Hang on. Shoo. So I'm back. I'm back. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> Go, Cheryl. Shaft versus chain. Oh, my God. <laughs> Graham wanted to bring you into the conversation and, and he said he wanted to get, you know, your opinion on it. Shaft or chain? Well... <laughs> when we kept blowing the seals on the shaft when we were traveling um, in the 2011-12-13 trip, we did get to meet a lot of nice people at BMW dealerships. Oh, $10. So, it's funny, Brian um, didn't mention the blowing seals thing. Yeah, interesting no, point. Did. So, did you say kept blowing the seals? Was this a regular occurrence oh, yeah. then? It was with that one. Absolutely it was. And what it was was uh, – in manufacture, this, this, the faces of the metal were not machined correctly. Quality control. And was it by Harley or something then, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good one. No, okay. no, when I got home, I actually, I actually machined it correct. You know, we, we put it on a, um, a flat surface with mirrored surface and, and, and uh, leveled them off perfectly because BMW couldn't fix it. And... Um, uh, we put it back together with a main seal and an output seal. And since then, over 200,000 kilometres, it has not leaked. Hmm. Just changed you, the fluid. You better but, check you know, your oil. I was, you know, was real. Well, it's 272 mils, actually, of oil. But uh, any more, and it will blow a seal because it builds up pressure because it doesn't have a, um, um, a valve on it. Hmm. Uh, um, anyway, that's another point. So, yeah, look yeah, – there's no doubt uh, um, shaft drive bikes are very handy to get the, the wheel off, but I, for the life of me, I can't see why you couldn't um, build a, um, a proper system to get the wheel out quickly. Ever watched them at MotoGP change a rear wheel? They can do it in about a minute or less. Oh, less than a minute. Less. And um, I've seen guys on trail bikes uh, do it in similar times. So, yeah, it's possible. Um, so, yeah, but well, maybe I'm being a bit serious here, but I, I really think, and the reason I'm being a little bit serious is because this question was asked of me by an engineer who has actually built um, a V8 um, motorcycle that he showed at the ICMA show and is selling them around the world, um, which are actually lighter than my GS. Actually, we should rephrase that. He's offering them for sale around the world. Well, he sold about 10 of them at over 100000 each. Wow. But um, – um, uh, uh, Vince, Vince said to me, what's your ideas on a perfect um, adventure motorcycle? So I gave him some of my thoughts. And he's disappeared into his the labyrinth of his engineering workshop overseas, and I haven't heard from him since. So maybe he's developing something right now. Interesting to see what, what comes of that. But well, I was going to say, let's, let's move on from the shaft and chain. We've been on this for about 45 minutes now. Uh, obviously, <laughs> point of contention. Gra Graham, what have you got? What, what's at the top of your list? All right, let me just say, uh, I'm due to my wonderful mood lighting. I'm going to put, shine a light on my list. Okay, so I've got... Um, 
five things here based on the fact that we get to design our own uh, motorcycle. Number one, um, invisible when parked, I think would be a very useful asset. Invisible um, what? Every, <laughs> invisible when parked. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, a Harry, Harry Potter a Harry invisibility cloak is what you need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every fastener, 13 millimeter, so you only have to take one tool. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, the um, auto automatic climate control I thought would be quite useful as well. Mm. And um, fourthly, tread that regenerates on the tyres. And uh, fifthly, runs on water. Wow. So those are all good. I don't know why people haven't thought of this stuff before. This is genius. <laughs> I should paint that, really, shouldn't I? Yes, you should. Actually, can I add one to your list, please, Graham? What's that? Tires that can be taken tires that can be taken off without tire pliers, so I don't end up with the heaviest piece of equipment in the bottom of my pannier. Well, those those are five very useful things, and and yes, I mean, I, I you know I can see this leaking into production very very soon. I can imagine this coming up. Sam, I, I want to go back to you because we only got your shaft and chain, and 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 Graham has given all his his wonderful ideas out in one shot. Let's let's grab some more from you. All right, I'll I'll be I'll be quick because I know everybody's else is itching to get in with this. Um, second on my list, and don't laugh at me, but heated grips. I've got to have an overlanding motorcycle with heating grips. My hands froze in Turkey, Nepal, South Africa, right the way through South America, much of North America. But I want a side bonus with these heated grips. I want to have a designed protective hand guards. So that metal metal um, rib to it for protection. But I want to have, like an armadillo, sleeves that you can pull out so that you can enclose your hand by about 50% to keep the um, the weather off. So that's my second one. Does everybody get what I'm talking about? That one's on my list too, Sam. You stole it from me. Extendable sleeve? Is that what you're talking about? Adjustable, basically adjustable covers. Mm. And so heated grips is actually on my serious list as well, so I agree with you on that Oh, you have another list. (laughs) We'll come back to that. Yeah, that's a serious one. (laughs) Um, I want a fuel tank that's going to give at least 350 miles range, and I want to have that designed so that most of the fuel is stored down low to help with the whole um, centre of gravity issue. Um, I'd like to have um, easy access fuel filters for cleaning for for where, just before it goes into the full pipe, but I'd also like to have the tank um, designed with um, a filter um, in the neck so that uh, when you're filling up, um, you're filtering. And I know you can get aftermarket ones, but I'd like this tank to come as a standard with that. I'd also like um, to have a saddle that's made for me as an individual, but also designed to make the pillion's life really comfortable as well. It's got to be slim at the front, so when I'm standing up, and it's got to be wider at the back, so I'm on the longer cruising sections, etc., um, etc. Et it's just got to be ergonomically designed to go with the foot pegs um, on, on the bike. Now, the next thing that I've got, oh, and with that, I'd like to have um, a camouflaged box set into the underside of the saddle for for tucking away little things that you need to have discreetly hidden. Um, The next thing, number five, is um, I would like to have a walkaway tank bag. Now, I've made myself many versions of, of this over the year, but I've never managed to get everything in the same place. So this tank bag 
has to be 100% waterproof, no covers, unless we're talking about taking one, um, a pale coloured one as a, as a heat reflector. It's got to be top opening with a tough zip that will cope with being dry, freezing, iced up, incredibly hot. And it's got to be top openings for easy camera access. It's got to be clip-on and not magnetic, and the straps have got to be slash-resistant, so they might be lined with wires. Um, it's got to have a slash-resistant outer layer. It's got to be lock-onable. Now, key is it's got to have shoulder straps, and it's got to have an expanding section at the bottom. Um, it doesn't have to be waterproof, but so that you can expand this out and use it as a day pack or a short high pack. It's got to have D-plugs in four places so that you can strap extra gear on the outside when you're off the bike. It's got to be big enough to carry an SLR, extra lens, filters, cleaning brush, etc., etc., in a crush-resistant compartment um, with adaptable foam blocks for the camera and lens support. It's got to be big enough for one litre of water to go in, a couple of maps, paperback book, carnet, paper, um, paper copies, a backup charge, a bag of nuts and raisins, a pen slot and a Sharpie slot and a notepad. <laughs> and it's got to have Velcro fastening pads to the interior so that you can manoeuvre compartments. It's got to have a waterproof cable slot for a charging cable for a backup charger. A clear scratch-resistant waterproof sleeve on top of the tank for carrying notes or a map or to slide a solar panel into. And it's got to have two easy-access waterproof outside pockets for such things as ferry tickets. Um, your piece of string, because, of course, how long is a piece of string? And your tyre pressure gauge, etc. There we are. So waterway, a walk-away tank bag, which can be nicely adaptable to be used as a sensible-sized day pack as well as security and, yeah, carrying what you need. There's a bit of an issue with the tank bag. You've got a liter of water in there with your camera? Yeah. It, it sure. has to be a Not waterproof a pocket for the liter of water. Braver than me. Mm -hmm. I would put the I water always on the travel with a liter of water in, in my tank bag. You just got to carry the right kind of bottle so it's not going to leak. It's fine. So you're going to say the right kind of water. It's a bit picky, isn't it? But Ooh. it would be fantastic to have something like that. Something just absolutely practical and just multiple purpose for an overlanding bike. Maybe one of the bag manufacturers will listen to this and be contacting you and say, I want to get that list. I can give it to them. It's you know, ready. It could be the, the Manicom overlanding tank bag. I like this. Talking of which, just going back to the heated grips, somebody could call those if they decide to manufacture them. They could call them armadillos. There we are. There's the marketing name already Ooh. sorted. I'm sure they had them. You see those Second World War movies of uh, Germans on bikes with sidecars, and they had like these huge muffs that they put their hands into onto the onto the grips. I'm sure I've seen something like that before. Yeah, they're called hippo yeah. hands. Oh, yep. right. Yeah, well, yeah. You can get them, yeah, but you've got to carry them extra. They're in. And and I, I use those in the winter without doubt. Um, I I love them. Um, but um, I want something that's just there. So you've not got to carry something extra. Mm. Well, the Hippo Hands, they, they stay on the bike. Like, like we've had them on the show before, the, the guys from Hippo Hands. Well, it's quite a while ago now. And I've, I've got them to yeah. use on my bike. They've got a couple of different versions of them. But they stay right on the bike and, and they're out of the way. And, you know, it, it's pretty good. It's not quite what you're describing, though, because to have it come up your sleeve, I think, would be a huge asset. Like that, that, could, that could do a lot. Some people may not like it at all. But, of course, we're talking, you know, personal preferences here. A bit of a wrist breaker if you come off, I reckon. What's that? A bit of a wrist breaker if you come off. Well, it's fabulous. Yeah, that's why I'm yeah. talking about, um, you know, sort of if you if you can imagine a ball um, 
and we're taking the ball in effect and cutting it in half. So um, it's sort of that sort of half size of a ball, and that give you a huge amount of protection to your hand from the from the cold and from the rain. Um, so. Mm. No more than I'm, that. I'm sure. I'm sure I've seen them where they slide. You know, the the hand guards, but they've got vents in them. And they slide across and back, yeah. so you can either have them open or shut. And I'm sure. I'm sure I've seen them. Yeah, I've used seen to make those. Them. Yeah, I've seen those, and I've seen them where they've got just one panel that slides out to increase the amount of um, reflection. But I'd like to see more because I get cold hands even with heated grips, and I ride year round. Here's what you do. Just drill your grips, drill holes in them so the air flows through them, and then take a piece of duct tape and put it over when when you're getting cold. Problem solved. Bingo. Yep. Moving on. Now. Okay, <laughs> moving rapidly. <laughs> Price is right. <laughs> Grant, what have you got on your list? Well, a lot of it's already been covered. Um, less weight would be a big one for me. I think the manufacturers don't work as hard as they could on getting down the weight instead of they're adding too much complexity and too much stuff. But we all know that. Um, so something in the midsize range. I'm, I'm thinking a 500 to a 700 is a great for a solo travel. But if you're two up, it's not big enough. You want 800 cc or so. Um, and like the Africa Twin is great for that. The Tenere 700, I would class that as a solo bike. It's not, I, would, I wouldn't say it's bad two up bike, but it's not nearly as good as something bigger. So there's a bit of a trick there. It's always a trade-off. People always say, I want less weight and I want a smaller bike and easier to pick up and stuff. Yes, okay, are you solo or are you two up? There is a difference in what you uh, what you need for that different purposes. So that's a tricky one that I struggle with all the time. Um, but I think modern bikes are pretty darn good and there isn't anything major that needs doing other than more effort on keeping the weight down. Um, less effort on more power, but uh, fine-tuning things like an adjustable windscreen. Yes, they've got the BMW. You can power moves up and down and stuff, but you can't adjust the width and you can't adjust the tilt. Things like adjustable wings on the side of the uh, fairing, windscreen, whatever, would make a huge difference. I've actually played with that in the past, and the difference can be spectacular. So that would be something I'd like to see, more adjustment on a windscreen for body protection and, um, and different height riders need different heights of screens and need, you know, there's little arrow lips you can put on the top. I think Brian's got a Touratech uh, device on the top of the windscreen that adjusts the airflow. There's a lot of things you can do with that, but not enough of it comes standard. Um, yeah. So that's a big one for me. Uh, hand protection, I go along with Sam totally in complete agreement on adjustable screening or whatever over the hands and hand Heated grips, absolutely. I've tried um, heated glove liners. Yeah, I, I've got some wonderful pairs of gloves that fit me really well. And if I try and put a liner in them, I can't bend my fingers. So you'd have to have a pair of gloves that are bigger in order just for that purpose. So I think that's kind of pointless. So, yeah, heated grips are great. Um, power outlets. Everybody's constantly adding on another power outlet so they can hook up something somewhere else. Um, I had to put one on at the back of our bike so that Susan's GPS has power um, so she can charge her phone while we're riding and all that. I had another one on the front for something else. Uh, it's a lot of fiddle-faddling about. So power outlets, front and back. Yeah, well, what is it with the power on a motorcycle, in, in particular adventure motorcycles? They build the bike like you're never going to add anything to it. 
I know. You know, the batteries are no buried. Yeah. Um, let's not get started on that. I've got electronic suspension on mine, which has an extra gadget. Um, I've still got another gadget that's for the uh, power control and an intercom or a wired intercom. And that fits where my toolkit fits. Hmm. But there's no room for the toolkit anymore. Like the little toolkit space is... It, it holds a, a pair of pliers and a screwdriver and maybe a 12-millimeter wrench, probably not a 13 like like uh, Graham wants. <laughs> yeah, see, if all your files is with 13, yeah. problem solved. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. I did like that idea, Graham. That comes to the other part is there just <laughs> isn't any place to put stuff and kind of stash it away. You know, I mean, sure, you can have a big tank bag, but I don't want to carry my toolkit in my tank bag. Uh-uh. That's just crazy. I mean, it, it's... Bikes are packed so compact and so tight and yet with great empty spaces front and back because it looks lighter that way. And one of the reasons that the uh, 1200 GS has a big hollow space inside the axle is because it makes the bike look lighter from the side. And that was part of the design brief, make the bike look light. Yeah, but it isn't light. I'm serious. I'm serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the best additions I put on the bike was the aluminium tube on the front down rails to put the tools in. Um, it kept them low, light, it distributed the weight. It was one of the best um, sort of accessories or sort of falcals or whatever you want to call it that I, I did on the KLR. And, and I keep it there. They're still there now. Oh, is it on the frame or the fork? Uh, the frame, no, it's on the frame, on the down tubes of the frame with a couple of exhaust pipe clamps. Oh, uh, and well, uh, I have to throw in a couple of comments on that. First, Graham, are yours, is your uh, tube across the frame? Yeah, it's, it's horizontal, yeah. Okay. Um, depending on where you mount it and the diameter, I have seen serious tire rub marks on those things. Yeah, yeah, the, it, yes. it, it can happen. I've, I, I've never done it. Mine, mine. I've got a little flap that I've screwed on the back of the mudguard, just a little extended mud flap, mm-hmm. and that flaps onto the tube, which keeps right. it clean in a little area. Yes. But, um, no, never got a tire mark on it, but I know what you mean. I yeah. mean, because you'd never believe you can sit there in the shed and you can put the front brake on, you can jump up and down the front forks, nothing, but you don't realize how much those forks flex yeah. on the road and they yes, can come exactly. back enough to, to touch the, the pull roll. Yeah. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. I, I mounted one on my, my KLR one time and I rode down stairs right afterwards and immediately going down the stairs, the tool roll, the tool package comes flying off. Like it, it was, it was, and I checked all the clearances ahead of time. The forks will flex somewhere between one and two inches under pressure. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. I mean, I used to straighten fork legs all the time uh, because people would constantly bend them in the old days. Um, and the fork, the, the pressure we would have to put on it was in the five to 10 tons range. And yet the fork would bend two inches and spring back to exactly where it was. In other words, I hadn't done anything. It was yeah. just working on its spring. Wow. Two inches bent. How'd you stop it from collapsing while you're, yeah. you've got it in the press? Oh, you have it in V-blocks. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's, it's a straightforward process. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's completely. I used a tool. I used a tool roll, which was made out of a uh, a uh, ex army disposal mortar shell, and that created a little bit of a tension at border crossings. It looked like I was carrying a mortar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the message that I want to make sure people have out there 
is that if you're putting one of those tool rolls on the front, and they can be great, it's a really good place to carry it, make sure that you take the springs out of your forks, push the wheel up, make sure there's at least two inches of clearance, even when the forks are fully collapsed, to make sure that the flex of the fork legs isn't going to hit that tool roll. Because if you hit it hard enough, your front wheel just stopped dead. And you're going to go over the handlebars. So let's not do that. Check it yeah. carefully. It's a lot of work to pull the springs out. You might just want to ride some stairs like I did. That, that seemed to do it for me. <laughs> That'll find out. Just think if they, Jim, why were you it, riding it stayed stairs? on. Oh, because uh, we had a shop. This is when we had our, our tourism company. We, we we had a shop that had a front door that had stairs going down there, like, you know, concrete steps. And um, my bike was facing that way. So I just rode down the stairs. I mean, I used to do it all the time and it didn't, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. It's just fun. Yeah. It's one of those things. I think it's like, why did, you know, why did you do this? Because it's there. One of those, one of those answers. <laughs> right. Yep. That's yeah. Answer. Yeah. I've got, I've got the, I've got the scars to prove that. Theory. Mm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Well, on, tell us the story. Brian. Who, me? What scars? Oh, well, you know, I was I was practicing my jumps on a on a um a trail bike, uh, and I, I don't know. You, you have sweat boxes. So it's boxes that we use big boxes to pack dried fruit in uh, huge wooden boxes, and I stacked a few up and. I was doing a few jumps and was doing okay. And then once I didn't do okay and went over the top of this bike and uh, ripped open my leg on the, you know, when bikes used to have the ignition switch mounted underneath the tank. Mm -hmm. uh, this was an old XL350 and uh, I ended up going over the tank and that ripped open my, my leg. But um, anyway. The key yeah, just, yeah, the key. Yeah. The key actually ripped it open. Maybe I wasn't wearing the right gear. Maybe oh. I didn't have <laughs> – well, you know. So did you just say that? Young and stupid. <laughs> yeah. Shirley, <laughs> what do you have on your list? I'm just in shock because of my husband's um, admission. Um, what did I have on my list? Nothing really, Jim. <laughs> Come on. Well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. You just look down at your paper and you go, oh, yeah, let me see my notes. Like, oh, yeah, I've got nothing. You didn't know? <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, look, I mean, oh, look, comfort. For me, if you're going to design any bike, you've got to think about the comfort of the pinion. That's what um, Sam was saying about making sure that the pinion seat is, is comfortable, that it's not a piece of rock hard, um, well, not metal, but rock hard whatever. Um, yeah. You know, the size, the weight, the shaft drive, the chain drive, the heated hand grips, all irrelevant to she who is on the back. They have yet to invent heated hand grips for the pinion passenger. So, you know, you go for heated gloves to make up for that. But uh, as far as does the design of the bike, the seating position and uh, the comfort of the seat is important. I did a little list for you, Shirley, and um, I had adjustable foot pegs on for you because it seems to me that I see so many pillion passengers with their feet and knees and so on in completely the wrong place, and I've never understood why they don't do a standard um, adjustable foot peg positioning. Mm. Yeah, foot yeah. peg for the passenger yeah, always some... looks like they've been stuck on at the last minute, like, oh, yeah, we need passenger pegs on here. Yeah, throw a couple of them mm -hmm. back. Well, the GS is perfect for me. Well, um, this is a discussion we had last night, wasn't yeah. it, Cheryl? About yeah. about um, it's not the seat so much as the position of your legs and your feet, so that when you're going over bump, you can take some of the weight on your legs, and you see um, 
pinion passengers look like bloody praying mantises with their feet tucked up around their ears. It's ridiculous. You know, you can't you can't um, use your um, natural um, legs uh, leg movement to to take the weight, and it's just crazy. But you're right. Yeah, that looks like looks like uh, foot pegs are just bolted on. But yeah, I'll, I'll give BMW that the the um, the foot peg position is perfect for a pinion passenger. Wow. That Not word perfect. That's that's a powerful word. Brian, what do you have well, on your it's list? Perfect, it is. It's perfect for my height opinion ah. passenger, I guess is Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and you know, Sam's idea of adjustability is, is great. That's right. And that they are there. But well look, I, I went a little bit practical with my list. Uh, I, I felt that um uh, and probably because I was talking to Vince about this, one of the most important things that I, I found is a, um, probably a, a shortcoming of um uh, most adventure bikes is the size of the front wheel. A 21-inch front wheel is probably perfect. The old days, the bike like um, Sam's got and uh, Graham's, 21 inches is probably perfect for an adventure bike because it handles so much better in the in the dirt and um, rough roads, things like that. Um, and uh, wheel size, I think, is important, particularly on the front. I don't know what the rest of you think. But to me, that's that's pretty important. Suspension and spring, spring ratings. Um, if you're going um, on a big trip, what are you carrying? How much weight are you carrying? Are you two up? Are you solo? Um, and get the uh, and spend the money and get the um, spring rated to exactly what your unsprung weight is. And I've done that with uh, the shocks that I put on my bike, and it makes a huge difference. I've got two um, two different sets of springs up in the shed. That if we're going adventure riding or we're going away on the bike and we're fully loaded, I change the spring and uh, things like that. And the ability for them to rebuildable uh, shocks on the road, um, which I've done, and also access bolts, tops and bottom, and that's about it. That's all you need and the ability to get to it. Access you're talking um, for the for the shock itself for the real for the shock. shocks to get them in. in yeah, it's, it's it's not that hard really if you know what you're doing. And you're talking um, unsprung and, weight. You're talking loaded weight, which is very difficult to do, I think, for most people because yes. you're not actually loading the bike until you go. And and then even then, it seems to be for most people a crapshoot. They keep loading until they think, I can't get any more on. I'm going to leave the rest of this and then I'm going to go. So that's the, the bike. That's, that, exact, that's, that, that's right, Jim. Yeah, and that's, that's the time you need to weigh it, that's, and that's the time you need to fit your your spring to get your. Yeah, but you can you, you can estimate it, and you really should lay out what you're going to take, and you say, oh, okay, well, how much does that weigh? And work it out from there. And how much do I weigh? Am I going? You're not going to lose thirty kilos uh, yeah. unless you get dysentery or something like that. But you know, um, seriously, um, you need to have a good think about that mm-hmm. and go and see a suspension specialist and have it, a think about it. It would almost be better to pack by weight, wouldn't it? So you say, okay, my bike is set up for this. I set it up. I planned on this much weight, and now this is what I have to do: get a scale and start chucking your stuff on there until you get to the weight and say, okay, that's it. That's my cutoff point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly. That's just that's what I did. To me, that's one of the most important things. That's what I did with the last um, shock that I put on. Sorry, I I talked over you. Then apologies. Um, That's exactly what I did when I bought the last WP um, that I've got on Libby. But um, one of the things that um, Brian mentioned is um, adjustability. And I had a, a really good WP on on my R80 GS when 
um, we were on on the big trip. And I could change the suspension according to the terrain that I was riding. So if I was coming across a section where I was going to be dealing with an awful lot more potholes and that sort of stuff, then I used to, to toughen the suspension up a bit. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why I did less damage to the bike over the years, because it was easy to do. Now, the, the shock that I've got on the bike now is a cheaper one, and it's a right royal pain to yeah. adjust. And I wish I'd never bought it because of that. Yeah, I yeah, know yeah. That's, not that's right. Good. Well, I, I, I got an Olin shock, which which has just got a, a knurled knob on it to um, uh, adjust the the spring rating, and you know all this electronic suspension. It's a gimmick. I, I just don't understand why you need to do that on the fly. To be quite honest with you, on an adventure bike, um, uh, I just uh, think it's um, more complication that you don't need. In fact, I bought my BMW brand new. When electronic suspension first came out and had the button on the on the handlebars, and I said, "I don't want it. I don't mm. want it." And uh, I had to fight with them to get them to provide me with a bike without it. The thing is, Brian, that that is cool to have, first of all, and it's convenient. I mean, you know, you ride a bit of trail, you can set up your 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 rebound. I guess that's all you've really got to, to do electronically, and um, then change it yeah. again when you hit the road again. I mean, it's you know. Convenience. You can you can also with the electronic suspension, um, modern electronic suspensions are quite adaptable in that they do it. They they compensate automatically, so that you get you get a lot of people that really don't understand what they're doing with the suspension, um, and you can easily set it up wrong. I mean, I've got the completely manually adjustable electronic Touratech suspension on mine, and it's really easy to set it way wrong. But you think it's okay, but it's actually not. When things start yeah. dragging, you realize, yeah. oh, that's not right. <laughs> but I can, on the road, yeah. I can just push a button and crank up the, uh, the, al- the altitude of the bike and get more ground clearance. I can adjust the fore and aft pitching. So if I'm cruising down the highway, I'll push a couple of buttons and it's nice and luxurious. We're talking Cadillac ride here. And then we hit a lovely twisty road and, oh, this twisty road has a whole bunch of bumps on it, so I better do a little adjustment. It's, it's really convenient to be able to do it. Maybe I'm being a bit old-fashioned here, but that's just the way uh, I felt that, you know, if you're looking at an adventure bike where in the middle of nowhere and something goes wrong with it, well, you're stuck with it. It doesn't move. Whereas, um, you know, if you've got a knurled knob, you can just uh, uh, twist it and, and dial it in as you see it. Mm, yeah, comfort, is, comfort is the big thing for me. And um, again, um, I got a brand new bike and ripped the seat apart and redid it because, um, uh, how should I put this? Crown jewels were comfortable on the um, on the seat and um, that needed to be adjusted. And uh, I found a guy who um, pulled the seats apart and made it um, a lot better for both Cheryl and myself for about 300 bucks, which is money well spent in my opinion and that lasted about 12 years and I've just had them recovered because it was a small tear in the front seat from uh, overuse probably. You had them and, recovered? Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, well I had the whole seat done. But our seat's two pieces. Our seats are two oh, pieces. Very yeah. good, very good. <laughs> Thank you, Shirley, sure. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's early. Is, Sorry, Jim. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> is that all you have on your list, Brian? No, no. Well, I'll go to number three. Okay. <laughs> number four, and I, I heard Sam talk about engine, and uh, I, I really, um, I'm not big on what capacity it is, but it has to be capable of maintaining the highway speeds, I think, uh, wherever you are uh, with your load. 
And um, the, the, one of the big things for me is uh, ease of maintenance on the road. You need to be able to change your oils and things like that. And um, a lot of bikes um, being unit construction now, you know, it's gearbox and engine oil all in one. Separate gearbox oil makes a big difference to the longevity of the, the engine and the gearbox, in my opinion. Um, capable of running on low-octane fuels. You don't want a high-performance bike which has to run on 98 octane and mm-hmm. you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, try and get that. Now, and I've, I've sniffed petrol uh, in <laughs> in all sorts of places like Kathmandu where it's most basically kerosene fuel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, Brian, the, the lowest octane that I ever rode with was 75 and that, yeah, one, that was in Egypt, yeah. and, that, and that really surprised me for an oil-producing country. Exactly, it's oh, cheap. Iran, Iran's the same. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. I think I think the bike has to be capable of doing that. Yeah, it might, it mightn't perform to its optimum, but it should be able to run. Um, in the stands, we found it hard to get petrol. Most service stations sold gas. Yeah, that's right. Uh, air cleaners. No oh, one's hang on a second. Clean- What's the difference between gas and petrol? They're the same thing, I thought. Oh, yeah. gas as in LPG. LPG. Oh, mm. I see. Right. Yeah, because yeah. it's a very high gas country, so they they have their cars running on gas rather than petrol. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So uh, we need a, a, an Australian slash Canadian slash American um, thesaurus, I think. <laughs> well done. Sure. Well done. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep I'll keep, I'll keep battling, uh, battling on with my list here. Yep. Um, air, clean, air cleaner access. Um, I think that's really important where you can get your air cleaner out and clean it very quickly. And uh, most bikes are pretty good. Triumphs are new. The the first versions of the Triumphs was terrible. I think I've told you the story about um, sitting there for half a day waiting for a friend to clean out his air cleaner, where he had to pull basically the carbies off to get to uh, access to his air cleaner. You know, it's just ridiculous in the middle of Pakistan. And it's easy. It's much easier if you've got access to your air cleaner when the Australian Quarantine Service want to take it off you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think I think I'll leave it at that, gents. Yeah. I think I've spoken enough. Someone else have a go. But it's lunchtime, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get, go back and get Graham's serious list. Uh, although I, I really hope the serious list includes the 13 millimeter bolt idea. Yeah, hang on, let me have a look at the serious list. Uh, we covered a lot of them. So, yeah, light, obviously, low, air cooled, I think. Um, I know my KLR is water cooled, and I've never really had a problem with that. But if you haven't got a radiator, you haven't got water hoses, I think um, it's less to go wrong. So, I would prefer air cooled. And, and to make the, the serious list, uh, what I actually did was walk around the KLR and thought, what would I like? Uh, sixth gear. <laughs> Every KLR rider wants a sixth gear. Amen. Um, so what called? Uh, what else? Oh, well, then again, what I'm doing here is looking at a European KLR. The, uh, the, European, the American ones have much larger tanks. So I would want an IMS tank or a larger tank as standard. Um, and two reserves, I think, is a, a little bonus, you know, because, you know, you've just won't run your last reserve dry. Another reserve would, I think, just be a little bit of a lifesaver. Although probably knowing you've got another reserve would just make you take even more chances. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is human nature. There's no doubt that we eat up the extra yeah, time. Yeah, so and, I don't know how good that would be. Yeah. And the only other thing I've got is fuel and temperature gauges. 
so because uh, again, the, the European KLR doesn't have a temperature gauge, and uh, I think fueling temperature gauges are a kind of, of nice to have. So that, that's my serious list. Well, if you're going with the air-cooled thing, you're going to have to go with, I guess, oil temperature for your temperature gauge, but um, that should give you an idea of what's going on. And, uh, oh yeah, good point. <laughs> the six gear thing is, is yeah, is, is uh, you, you know you can you just stand out as a KLR owner when you when you're talking about a six gear. But uh, <laughs> DRZ four hundred, same thing, yeah. five speed gearbox, close I, ratio. I saw that. a thing on a on a I saw a thing on a KLR forum. It said, "Why don't KLR ride riders wave?" someone wrote because they're pulling in the clutch looking for six gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want a seven speed. I've got a seven-speed. <laughs> yeah, overdrive. That would be handy, wouldn't it, for those yeah. long highway oh, stretches of the tailwind? Seven-speed. Wonderful. You know what I do see um, the, the sort of common on these uh, on these lists is ease of, oh. of maintenance, of, of, of regular maintenance, and um, yep. comfort. That, that, that seems mm-hmm. to be like like common things. Like, cause you know, like Grant, you know, you said less weight, adjustable windscreen and hand deflectors, hand protection, heated grips. Uh, and then you were talking about power outlets and storage. You pretty much all talking about comfort. Sam, you, you were talking about also, you mentioned easy uh, filter access, uh, a saddle, uh, a seat with a, that was a perfect fit with a, a camouflage box built into it. Uh, you talked about that. You also talked about the heated grips. Um, Brian, you talked about comfort of seat and about, you know, changing a, your, your brand new bike seat. And also you mentioned air cleaner access. It seems like those are, seem to be common things that that everybody's looking oh, yeah. at, you know, if you look at it in a, in a more serious way. Comfort and convenience. That's what it's all about. The basic bikes are there. I mean, the, the technology in modern bikes is so good, generally, that it comes down to fine tuning. Well, one of the things that, you know, when Brian was talking, it, it occurred to me is I, I like what he was saying because... A lot of um, the, how, how wonderful a, um, an overlanding motorcycle is, is how easy it is to maintain because if you're maintaining it regularly, then you've got a chance that it's not going to go pear-shaped on you somewhere, somewhere darned awkward. And it's peace of mind as much as respect to the thing that you're putting your life in the control of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, makes, that mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. Although I, I do still love the 13 millimeter bolt idea. I think that is just fantastic. Imagine one <laughs> wrench for everything you're going to do on that bike. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Oh, one, one wrench and one Allen, Allen key size. <laughs> Torx. Torx. Uh, another thing is um, for ease of maintenance, uh, that's all available. It's all been done. We've progressed out of it. I mean, working on my 78 Triumph, it's all so simple and straightforward. Yesterday, I was servicing a guy's full transit van. It's a 1986 full transit. I was doing the exchange for some work he's going to do on my website. And um, it was just a basic service, plugs, oil filter, air filter, and a few things. I mean, it's just so easy. Everything's accessible. Everything's logical. The parts are cheap. And that's just something that's gone with with. I know we got we always end up going into grumpy old git mode, but it is you know that that ease of maintenance, that that logical, basic mechanical skill has been taken away with advancements which are supposedly making our lives easier, but they're not. It's a lie. Mm, the conspiracy. No, and I, all those advancements, Graham, is just more stuff to go wrong on the road. 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I think we'd, I know, I know we're going to go off on a tangent here, but um, I think that there are a lot of advancements that have um, really made things better for riders and more reliable. Even, even when you look at chain technology and particularly look at um, seals, you know, and, and um, gaskets and things like that. Uh, tolerances, you know, the tolerances that they can get now. I mean, things are getting better in those areas, but yeah, there's tons of other stuff. I mean, like Brian said, something goes wrong on, on a new bike in the middle of nowhere, you're stuck. I, I don't even care if you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, if you got to walk 10 miles, you know, to someplace or to, you know, 15 kilometers or whatever it is, it's an inconvenience to say the least. Whereas back in the day, you could, you know, pull it apart and, and usually um, do something with it on the side of the road, or at least a lot of times. Yeah, that's right. At least you could get moving and get to somewhere where it's more convenient to, yeah. to do a, a major repair. Nowadays, you can't even do a, a jury rig repair on the side of the road nine times out of 10. Yeah. It's like cars. I mean, you know, when a car broke down uh, not long ago, people would pull over and they would help you because just about everybody, you know, who did mechanical stuff would understand a carburetor and your ignition systems and things like that. And you know, 10 to 1, you get person going again and off they go. And the problems didn't seem that big. But having said that, though, I have to admit, like my bike is fuel injected and I've had to do absolutely nothing to the fuel system. Nothing at all. I mean, the thing runs perfect. and I've had it for, I don't know, eight years or something. Yep. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention uh, fuel injection nowadays too because you're right, you know, carburetors are reasonably easy to, to um, fiddle around with, but fuel injection, uh, as long as you keep it clean, and I, I would constantly, if I was in an area where I was getting poor fuel quality and all the rest of it, as soon as I could get somewhere, I'd put some injector cleaner through it just to make sure that the you know it was um, still um, giving a, a, a good spread of fuel spray and things like that. Yeah. Just general maintenance. But I think the thing is with, if you compare the two, the carburetor and the fuel injector, the thing with the carburetor is you could pull it apart and clean it. It's going to be some dirt that's gummed it up with an injector. You're almost stuck replacing that part. And I think that sort of goes with a lot of technology. Yep. When it quits, it's electronic, it's dead, and you're going to have to replace a component. Whereas before you could take it apart, um, anybody who's skilled, take it apart and usually get things going again. You still had to have spare parts. Yeah. I mean, it could easily be so plugged or damaged or the float could be full of, of could have a hole in it and yeah, it's full of true. gas and you need the float. You can't just patch that one very easily. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. It used to be that we complained about points when they went to electronic ignition. <laughs> oh, you know, but this is a long argument that we've had before. The You're getting rid of simple mechanical stuff and putting in a actually very simple electronic item as long as the electronics mm. don't fail it's absolutely wonderful you know, a fuel inject bike doesn't care whether it's 10,000 feet or 1,000 feet or below sea level it still runs just fine carbureted bike mm, my R80 GS at 10,000 feet ran like a pile of junk it's terrible yeah, I mean, Libby works all right up there, but um, all right was um, wide open throttle at 40 miles an hour going downhill. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> it's not good for fuel consumption. No, I, I on, on that my ideal bike, I would have had um, I, I would have had fuel injection. I mean, I don't understand it very well. Um, the R80 um, F800GS that I've now got in the States, that's the first fuel injected bike I, I've I've had. So I'm, I'm still learning it, but... Um, I do like it. And one of the reasons why I didn't buy an airhead for the States was because, yeah, it sucks an awful lot more fuel than um, than a fuel-injected bike does. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, okay. Um, I, I think we've got our, our list. Does anyone have anything else 
to go with this this redesign before I send it off to BMW? Uh, at the bottom of my list, at the bottom of my list, I had chain versus um, sprockets and fully enclosed chain, but I think we've covered that. <laughs> yeah, chain versus shaft. Yeah, I agree totally with Brian. I mean, I had to deal with fully enclosed chains way back when. I remember the Boltaco Matralla had a fully enclosed chain, and it was brilliant. I mean, you just wrote it, and wrote it, and wrote it, and wrote it, and just ignored the chain. It's all that dirt and grunge that you get pick up from the road that wears out the chains. Mm. The trick is to keep the bike out of the dirt. Don't ride it in dirt. No, never. Yeah. <laughs> so Jim, go and wash your mouth up, please. <laughs> so basically what we're sending off uh, to tell them to redesign is we're looking for a more comfortable bike that's easy to maintain, simple in technology, and is built with 13 millimeter bolts. I think Amen. that's it. <laughs> That'll do. Simple. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Then we're going to come back because we got more. We got a couple of things to talk about that I think are going to be quite good. We're going to have fun with this. So it's uh, it's freshtracks.co.uk. That's who is supporting this episode. Freshtracks has been around since the 90s. And what Freshtracks does is works with companies to inspire, um, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills through team building exercises. And they work with um, some big companies like Mars and Comic Relief and Yahoo and Pfizer and, and things like that. But for motorcycle, oh, and by the way, I, I was just speaking with uh, Dan at Fresh Tracks and he was saying that they're just about to come out with a, um, a new program to show companies how to build their team and how to sort of prosper, I guess, during COVID because it's making it so difficult, uh, as we all know, for communications things. And the weird thing is, and I think we can all relate to this, is not the weird thing, but I mean, uh, I guess the thing some of us didn't see coming is how long this is hanging around for with no end in sight, right? So we're all adapting new ways of doing what we do. I think no one is, is unaffected by this, regardless of what you do for a living. So anyway, they're, they're coming out with a, a new program and that'll well, I'll probably be able to talk more about that on the, the next episode. But anyway, for motorcyclists, they have something already. They have, now this is the website, freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space so freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space this is a, a a place where just outside of london in the uk fresh tracks owns this they've got a facility there for motor related adventures in other words you, you can you can you can camp there you can make it a base camp they've got all kinds of green lanes close by so it's a spot where you can do shakedown rides you know check out your gear maybe you just want to get away and you're in the uk you're looking for a spot to to set up a camp They've got it there. They also have um, rental spots available. They get a and b and different things available. Freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. Obviously, motorcyclists. So they'll be very excited to, to hear you call uh, or email and ask about this. And of course, don't forget to mention uh, Adventure Rider Radio Raw when you do that so that they know it came from us. So um, now moving on, we have one of our listeners named Scott Doby wrote in. So Scott says, I'm going to paraphrase some of this. For someone who wants to do a trip post C word, of course, I think we all understand that's COVID. How should one cope with all the noise? Soft bags, hard bags, smaller bike, larger bike, the bike you love, no planning, a little planning, plan your borders, just rock up. Don't worry. Just go. Don't be silly. And he says, ah, in the, in the email, he says he loves ARR and raw. Great. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. And he's considering a one to three month trip in South America or maybe longer if he quits his job. Now, I really like this because Scott has made a really good point here. There's, there's a lot 
of conflicting information out there about all these things that, that I just mentioned there and more when it comes to overlanding, when it comes to motorcycling, really, when it comes to everything. Uh, there's a lot of people with opinions and everybody has uh, access to the internet now. So the opinions can be posted and they show up as information, I think more than opinion a lot of times. But I don't think that we can actually say that someone is wrong that their approach is not correct when they say, I never plan my border crossings. I just rock up and it, it creates the most amazing adventure. It's difficult to say someone is wrong for that. That's just a different approach. So what do you guys think? Like, how do you cope with all the, what Scott is saying, noise? My first reaction to that was, um, watch my Achievable Dream video series. <laughs> that was designed to help you cut through the noise. Um, that's that was the whole point of it was there's so much information. What do you decide? What works? Yeah. But the and thing I is, even they, in that though, a lot of people had d- different opinions, conflicting opinions. Like, in other words, one would say they like one thing and another would say they like something else. And it goes back to that thing of choose what you like. Yes. And I think that is the number one thing that comes out of it is you have to decide what works for you. Everybody's different. And for somebody to say, well, you need a 1200 GS or you, you need the, Ducati hypermotard or whatever. No, not necessarily. I mean, for you, maybe, but for me, a 125 two-stroke through the woods is going to be just fine because I'm different. And you have to decide what is important for you. And I think you can kind of do a, a, a range, a, a spectrum. Uh, everybody has different attitudes and opinions on how prepared you should be. Well, you have to decide, am I totally not prepared and just rock up or do I have everything planned down to the T and I have the GPS coordinates of the head guy's office? Where are you in that scale? And you need to work through all the various decisions and decide where you are on the scale. And eventually you'll come to a realization that I'm a planet down to the last thing guy, or I'm, you know, I'll just show up and we'll see what happens guy. And you have to work that out for yourself. And everybody's so, so different. But I think the most important thing is decide what works for you. Decide whether, um, sorry, go for KISS. Keep it simple, super simple, or keep it simple, stupid, if you're not politically correct. Um, do what works for you. Keep it simple. Don't get carried away. Don't listen to too much stuff, but pick out the important things. I'm always reminded on our video series, Herbert Schwartz, the founder of Touratech, said on our video, and here's a guy who's got a three-inch thick catalog full of stuff. He said, don't take so much stuff. Modify what you need. (laughs) The important thing is to go. And I think that's absolutely critical. That says it all in a nutshell. You're really hitting the nail on the head there. Go on. Go on, Brian. uh, Yeah, sorry, Sam. Uh, Look, I... I, um, I feel sorry for some people who sit there and take copious notes when people are talking about their adventure, trying to work out what they need to do. And I think it's just clear your mind. As you said, Grant, Mm -hmm. just clear your mind. Think what you want to do and what you want to achieve and how you want to do it. And it's as simple as that. Um, Sometimes you've heard Sheila talk about us over-planning our first trip and under-planning our second trip. Well, that's okay. We both, we got there, you know, it didn't matter. And you just go with the flow. So, I, and and I, I broke down um, Scott's question a little bit further with soft bags, hard bags, and all that sort of stuff. And the noise is basically, well, what works for you? Have something, have a place that's secure, and soft bags have their advantages, hard bags have their advantages. 
for me, it's a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. But, you know, little things like that, you know, you don't have to overanalyze it. See? Yeah. You, you've, you really, really don't. And hi, Scott. First of all, I think what a fantastic dream you've got. And partly my thoughts go down to try to get longer if you can or limit the number of countries so that you're not just riding on through. Because you could easily spend a month in Colombia, for example. And um, if you've got three months, absolutely fantastic. But you might want to do a little bit more planning for that three months unless you're going to really limit yourself to the number of miles that you're going to cover. Um, because I split my, my thoughts into two. First, kit and the second, route. And both Brian and Grant have, have said, um, where's the effect of each of us is an individual? So the most important thing is work out what you as an individual want from your trip. And as far as kit is concerned, well, you know, maybe you're already doing camping trips on your motorcycle, so you may not need much more than you've already got. You might want to up your water, water carrying and fuel capacity, that sort of stuff. And if you've got favorite bits of kit already, they're in good condition, you know how they work, they do a really good job. You can't see why when you really sit down and think about it, you're going to need anything else. Well, take those. Um, save the money um, and put that in your fuel tank. As far as the, the route is concerned, um, this comes back again to, well, why am I going? What do I want out my trip? Um, the planning that you do is, uh, it allows you to maximize the opportunities along the way and it means that you're less likely to get in trouble because of s- simple ignorance. It's such as, you know, do you have the right paperwork? And if you're in a very limited amount of time, then you can't rock up to a border um, when you're planning to do six countries in three months and not know anything about what the next country needs as far as visa and paperwork for your bike and things like that. You haven't got enough time. So goes back to either cut the number of countries that you're going to go through or increase the amount of time. Um, the key is that if you have chance for a longer trip, then it's easier to make things up and plan as you go. If you have less time and your dream is as big, number of places, etc., then do a little bit more prep. But don't get bogged down. It's actually not that difficult. Yeah, I think a little add- addendum to that that I was just thinking as you're going, I completely agree with what you're saying. But I think something we always need to remember is there's a lot of people who did a lot of planning, a lot of people who did no planning, and a lot of people in between, and 99.999% of them made it. Mm-hmm. So it really doesn't matter. Whatever works for you, you'll get there. You'll figure it out. I mean, I remember rocking up to the Egyptian border crossing, and at that time, of course, nobody knew anything. There was no available information on the internet about what it was like or how, what it was involved and how to do it. We didn't have a clue. Six hours later, we knew all about it. It took six hours, and that was being fast-tracked because we were foreigners, and they wanted to help us through. Okay, we figured it out. We made it. We did it. We got. We survived it. You know, so don't worry too much. You will figure it out. There's always a way at the end. And somebody once said somewhere, if, it's, if it hasn't worked out, you're not at the end yet. <laughs> I like that. Can I add something about the gear for for um, Scott? If you've got soft bags or hard bags and you find they're not working for you, you can change the stuff on the road. You can buy stuff while you're overseas. And um, and we sent our top box home from Canada and replaced it with a, a big all-weather gear sack, which made a lot more sense. 
But when we left home, we thought we needed the hard top box. So you can, um, and we added things like bags on top of our um, panniers to add extra stuff when we put camping gear into the mix. So it, it can all be a work in progress while you're actually on the road as well. Oh, yeah, and South America, what a great spot, mate. And and uh, I hope you get there and you can take a little bit longer than three months if that's all you've got, as Sam said. You've probably got to do a little bit of planning, but, oh, what a beautiful part of the world. Six months there for us was too short. I'd love to go back there and do another six months. Yeah, easily, at least. Graham? Yeah. My uh, only uh, suggestion would be um, it's almost compulsory these days to get back from adventure and uh, write a book about it. So check out some different reading. You know, I did it really, my trips, a seat of the pants, low budget, and um, an ignorant bliss. And, you know, read a book, see whether you think, oh, yeah, I, I like that style of writing. That's, that's just what I want to do. I think, no bloody way. There's no way I'm going to put myself through that. So if you read it through a few different people's styles of writing, the very research, the sponsored, the, all the gear, the latest technology, the low budget and see what appeals to you and I think that might help make up your mind a little bit and the other thing is and I'm sure you've probably done this already is um the bike you've got right now is is do some little trips on it and the panniers that you have do they work the the carrying capacity that you have the, and the setup that you have is that working for you and if it is then you can elaborate on that I, 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 but ultimately, I think you know Grant's words are the ones that it should be your mantra. You know, every you know, everybody, regardless of their of their style, has, has managed it one way or another. So I think that's a great thing. That's a real peace of mind to to remember that is that one way or another you're going to do it. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, three months um, sounds like a long time, but it's really not. So I just want to reiterate what everybody else says. You know less countries just try and do uh, a little bit thoroughly rather than a lot in a rush because you're not going to get anything out of that at all. That's all I've got to say. Unless you're there to just ride the roads, in which case you can do a lot of roads, but you won't meet the people, you won't see anything, you'll, you'll be exhausted, you'll be worn out all the time. Less mileage, absolutely, I'd go for that. Everybody, everybody makes the same mistake. Too much mileage, too much distance, too little time. So I'll try and reverse that. I was just thinking about Peru and Peru you could spend three months in easily. Chile oh, yeah. you could spend three months in easily. Each of the countries down through South America, you could pretty I don't know about Bolivia, I don't know it quite so well, but you could spend three months in any one of those countries or at least between two of the countries and just spend every day going wow at a nice, steady, comfortable pace. Now, I remember the Duvals who spent a year there on their first around-the-world trip and on their second around-the-world trip, I think they spent two years in South America. Yeah. So that's like three years altogether. And they would still be happy to go back. So yeah. think about that. I guess I'd be an aficionado in one country, come back knowing a lot about one country, and then, you know, maybe do another one later rather than just say, you know, than just know the road from... Uh, I know from Colombia to Uruguay is is not really seeing a country or a continent. You know, it's interesting to me the the the, um, the different information that we've just given out here because what everybody here agrees on on this panel is that the the bags and the planning and stuff it's going to work out. 
you know, but there's one thing that everybody agrees on as well. And that's, you need to make your trip longer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because we're, we're saying here at one point, don't listen to, you know, everybody's stuff, work out your own thing. And the other thing we're saying is you need to make your trip longer. That's personal preference. Now I, I know that it's, I know it's, it's a really common thing that a lot of people say, but I mean, what do you want? A short vacation or a long vacation? Obviously the long vacation is better, but maybe to some people, that's what they want to do. They want to ride South America in a, in 30 days or, you know, or 45 days or, or something like this. And that is their adventure. Yeah, yeah but it was speak, speak to someone who rode America, the South America in 30 days and ask them what they do different. And they probably say, spend a month in Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not Nick Sanders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there well, are not Nick Sanders. Obviously, there's the always going to be an exception, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you start in Alaska and have a week off when you get to the bottom. <laughs> Scott uh, also has uh, another question that we're gonna, we're going to cover here, and and this sort of speaks back to something we were talking about earlier. Shirley had mentioned uh, about her thoughts on designing the ultimate bike, and I said we're going to sort of come back to this because. The other question he has here are, what are some tips and tricks to make the pillion more comfortable on longer trips? Um, bike brand, bike size, gear modifications, question mark. Um, he says he has a Honda uh, AT, uh, Africa Twin, and um, he loves it, but his pillion gets sore and is not interested in more than shorter rides, or the short rides. Um, with a pillion strictly in mind, would a GS be more comfortable for a pillion, etc.? And he says, love the shows. He says he's six foot five. She's five foot two. She doesn't want to ride a bike herself, but he says he's working on that as well. I have to say that my, my first thing, and I'm going to throw this in here first, is that I think that if your pillion isn't interested in riding, I wouldn't push her. I don't, I don't think we should be pushing people to ride. Some people, I mean, I think just having her back on the back of the bike, if she's happy with riding on the back of the bike with short trips, man, just enjoy the short trips. You know, um, that's, that's my thought process on it anyway. With, I have a thing about, um, about pushing people to do the things that you want to do, you know. Well, and you've got another bike to maintain as well. A lot more money. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's true. Good point. And yeah. can I just say the first the first thing on my list, and I do have a list for this one, Jim, mm -hmm. um, was <laughs> do not force your pinion passenger to ride. Mm. Yep. The most important thing about any form of travelling is you must both be enjoying it. And you put someone under stress to do something they're really not that keen on doing and more often than not they're not actually going to be enjoying themselves. Uh, we talked about me learning to ride when we did our first trip and apart from the fact that I really didn't want to, Brian thought that he would be more worried about what I was either doing behind him or in front of him uh, and it was much easier to know that I was sat be be behind him and, and having a good time rather than panicking in traffic or not enjoying the road or whatever. So certainly my first one was don't force the opinion to ride. Scott, I'm sorry we don't have her name. I think that's well, well said. I think you made some good points there. And the yeah. other thing, as I said, both you both must enjoy it. There's yeah. no point in you riding like a, a a racer and her sitting on the back of the bike terrified or you saying, yep, let's take this really gnarly road, which if you were riding on your own, you could stand up and, and do all those magic things. Um, and that's not so easy with or for the pinion. So you just got to think those things through when it's a two two up uh, proposition. 
Yeah, I'd have to agree with the same thing. We went through the same thought process when we decided we were going to do a world trip. Susan had never ridden a motorcycle and had no interest in it. And we thought about it and does it make sense? And she just said, nah, I'm not interested. I'm happy on the back. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, pushing it doesn't work. They, I have seen people, women get pushed into it by their husbands into riding. Some of them took to it till like a duck to water. They loved it. It was wonderful. But a lot of them hated it. And I can think of a couple of relationships that have, that ended because of that. She yeah. was too pushed, got frustrated, got angry. And the whole thing just blew up. Oh, so, I worry about somebody getting hurt or, or like Shirley said, oh, totally, um, totally. just being uh, uncomfortable, you know, so that, so it's a totally different experience when you're stressed all the time, when you're riding, you know, if it's your thing, I think don't push it on somebody else. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as when somebody asks me to about riding, you know, or, or we get talking and maybe they're not a rider. I don't feel I should push anyone to ride. I can tell them how spectacular it is from my point of view, but the last mm-hmm. thing I want to do is tell somebody you need to ride, you should get your license and then find out, you know, they, they got hurt or they had a bad experience on it. Yeah. I've seen that too often. Yeah. On. I'm afraid I dropped out then. I um, don't know what happened, but um, you've probably all had a, a very interesting conversation that I've missed. Yeah. Sorry. It's the it's the whiskey, Sam. It's the whiskey. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just pulled it on the keyboard. That seemed to have worked. <laughs> you didn't drop out. We heard your head hit the table. <laughs> no, there's still at least four fifths of the bottle left. I'll work on that in the next half an hour. Um, yeah. I thought a lot about this as well because both Birgit and I have ridden pillion. Um, I ride pillion behind Birgit and. Um, it's very entertaining, the shadows that we leave, because Birgit's only five foot tall, so there's this great big lump sitting on the back of this tiny little lump in the front. But um, we always attract interesting looks. But I think um, a happy pillion is a respect thing, and a happy pillion is an exciting ride thing. And part of what's making it work is um, most motorcycle riders don't understand what it's like to be a pillion. Most riders never do it, so they don't have a clue what it's like to be sitting behind and the challenges that a pillion passenger has to deal with. Um, I mean, a key point is that a pillion rider doesn't have the handlebars to hold on to. The the rider always has the constant movement and the braking and the gear changing and all of the demands of being in control that help with concentration and help moving, whereas the pillion doesn't have that constant movement thing. I think a pillion is usually nervous about doing the wrong thing, and I think when a pillion knows what they're supposed to do sitting on the back, then they're that much more comfortable because every pillion that I've ever ridden with wants to do the right thing. They won't, don't want to do something dangerous. And I've got friends who just expect somebody to get on the back of the bike behind them and know exactly what to do. And it just doesn't work that way. And there are advantages to being a pillion. Um, I can see more when I'm sitting at the, at the back um, to the sides and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but for me, as a pillion, I want a comfortable saddle. I want the right place for my foot pegs so that my knees are ben- below my my, knee- my hips. And if I'm riding with my feet on vibration-free pegs and not fouled by anything like a pannier, um, then I'm much happier. And I want comfortable places to hold on to. I want at least two positions to hold so that I can change my sitting position, but also I can adapt where I'm holding according to the road conditions. And also, because I'm not got the constant braking gear changing, handlebar moving, I want to stop more often. I want a bum rest. 
I want to be able to stretch, loosen up, um, make all of them work again, all of those muscles work again, rather than being compressed in one position. Um, and I think when I'm riding as pillion, um, I want to have responsibilities. Um, I'm much happier when I'm a co-pilot rather than uh, when we were riding two up together. Um, she was co-pilot, for example, and she was dealing with the navigation, the route planning, the operation, the photo opportunity spotting, the wrong direction spotting, and sharing the work of the packing, leaving me to concentrate on the traffic and what the bike was doing and so on. But it is such a horses and courses thing. It's like you guys started off with. Some people just don't enjoy being a pillion. Some pillions simply love the ride and actually they don't want anything to do. They just want to sit at the back and just enjoy being there. But whatever it comes down to, if you've got a happy pillion, then you've got a happy ride, haven't you? Yeah. So critical. Shirley, do you agree with everything that I've just said? Um, yeah, up to a point. Um, yeah, you say that you need to do... The opinion needs to have lots and lots of jobs. I'm quite happy sometimes to have no jobs and just yeah, I'm not saying lots and, and lots and of jobs. Watch. I'm saying being part of the team rather than being a... Oh, yeah, but you're always... You're, yeah, no, you're always part of the team. If you're not part of the team, don't bother going. If the rider mm. doesn't consider you part of the team, part of the ride, um, there's no point in even being there, really. They're going to be better off on their own. And we have our jobs, as you say, Sam. You know, there's some things that happen at the end. You know, at the end of the day, I'll look for the room. Brian will deal with the bike. I'll look at planning for the next day. Um, as far as going in the wrong direction, I usually just shut up because I'm invariably going to send us in the wrong direction um, when he's <laughs> taking us in the right direction. Um, so over, over many over many years, um, the fact that we've been married for 31 years sometimes shocks me that we've survived that long because of my lack of navigation skills. But, um, and the seating position for the pinion is um, is really important. I remember Graham and I had a discussion a while ago when he'd been for a trip with his girlfriend and she found the ride uncomfortable, Graham, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wish she was here now, actually, because she'd be able to, um, she's supposed to be, but anyway, but because she, um, novice pillion, and on the back of someone who's not that used to having pillions, not for two or three day trips. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really listening quite attentively to both sides of this because uh, I've got stuff to learn, and um I think she has jobs to do. Maybe she should have more jobs to do. I don't know. I'll just <laughs> see what she's you can worry about stuff. how uncomfortable she is. <laughs> it does take your mind off it when you've got something to do and you've actually got a sense of responsibility. You're not that sitting there like a sack of potatoes, although most pillions that ride well as a pillion do just know how to sit there relaxed like a sack of potatoes. And one of the, yeah. something that I always tell pillions when they're coming with me for the first time is, look, when I'm going to go around the right-hand corner, don't lean. Everybody tells you they have to lean into corners, and pillions think they have to do the same, do that too. Well, it just, I don't think it works. But if a pillion's sitting behind me, if I'm going into a right hand corner, they look over my right shoulder, and that's all they do. That's perfect. Left hand corner, yeah. look over the left shoulder. And just that small amount of body movement, and because then my pillion knows exactly what they are required to do to keep us safe, then I can feel them relax behind me. And like you said, Sam, most riders don't know what it's like to be on the back, uh, you know, oh. to, sit, to sit as a pillion, to ride as a pillion, because even even just the trust thing, I mean, you've got like a, a 90% trust thing there and a 10% hope that the yep. the, the, the person in control of the motorcycle is doing the right thing. Yep. Yeah. We've had um, 
sessions at our travelers events uh, titled How to Get Someone Else to Ride With You on a, on a Big Trip. And we've got some interesting comments about that and learned a lot about where people really go wrong. Um, plus, I've had the experience with Susan and working, breaking her into the whole thing and listened to a lot of people over the years. So I've got <clears throat> a fair list here, actually, of things that I can discuss. So I'll just give you some basics. And one of the first things that popped into my mind, she just wants to do short rides. Is this the first bike she's ridden on? Hmm. How, what's, how much experience has she had? Uh, what I've seen happen is that people take somebody out for the first time on a bike, and first off, they go too fast. Second, they go too far. Mm-hmm. And she's just not used to it. And she's wearing borrowed clothing, not the right gear. She's not comfortable. She's not sure what she's doing. It's basically really scary, terrifying in various levels. Um, and it's not comfortable. Bikes are not really that comfortable, like sitting back in your nice, luxurious SUV cruising down the highway. There's a big difference. So you need to break her in gently. Um, the thing that always comes up is short rides that end somewhere cool, you know, like a great restaurant on the beach or a mountaintop, that kind of thing, somewhere that she'll like and can associate that fun event with the riding and a short ride. Oh, that's good because ways. that's like a reward thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, absolutely. And it sort of builds the association where every time we go out, it's fun. Yeah, that's a good idea. Exactly. You know, go, some, go to a nice park and go for a walk, whatever, but make it fun. Make it not about, don't expect her to be happy at 100 miles because she won't be. I mean, even experienced passengers go a long way. It's 100 miles is a, is a big ride for a passenger. So keep that in mind. Um, and especially if the seat doesn't fit her, you might need to think about a custom seat for her. Uh, Susan is much happier with the modified seat she now has. The, even the uh, upgraded fancy aftermarket seat, what she's got now is the seat concept soft with modifications to fit her. You just went for a little ride, says, yeah, a little bit of pressure here, tuned a little bit off. Uh, There's a groove down the middle to reduce pressure in the center, good for women and especially men. Just don't want pressure down the middle. That's one of my bugaboos. Um, And our experience with the AT, we rode one in Africa, South Africa. Uh, We only had a couple of hours on it, but it it was pretty clear what the situation was. We rode a 1200 GSA before and after it. And it was no contest for passenger comfort. So to answer Scott's question, the 1200GS is way better. Susan's comment on the seat, uh, or the AT, the seat is suitable for a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> okay, take that for a hint. So at the very least on the AT, you're going to need a new seat if you want to stick with the AT. But uh, overall, the 1200GS is a lot more comfortable. Better sitting position, the, the feet are in a better position and all kinds of things. But it's not rocket science, is it? Because, yeah. you know, if, if, if he likes these, um, you know, this particular bike, then, hey, how they, difficult is it to adapt it and to, to, to build it to suit his partner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was also with, with her involvement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do some test rides. Go take, out, go take some bikes out for a ride, two up. See what she likes. If she comes up with a completely different opinion and says, yeah, the Africa Twin is the absolute loser on all of this and no, a better seat won't fix it, well, you're, you're buying a new bike, buddy. Um, on the other hand, if the only thing that's really wrong with it is the seat, okay, fine. Fix it until it's right. Um, so that's something to think about. Um, and then riding gear. Yeah. 
what we found is that riding gear is really critical. Um, if she's a new rider, and I understand from what she has been said that she probably is, she needs to have at least as good and probably better riding gear than you. She needs to be comfortable and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, electric vest. Warmth is critical. Surely, you agree? Electric vest, yes? Oh, sorry. I just wondered if the pinion was going to get a look in on this picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the riding gear is imperative, Grant, absolutely. And someone said before, I think it might have been you, Grant, that she might be riding in someone else's gear. Well, yeah. that is never going to work. Um, just throwing on a pair of jeans, your boots, and someone's jacket that's two sizes too big and a helmet that doesn't really fit and gloves that aren't tight and, yeah. You've got to have your own gear. It's got to be comfortable. If you're riding in all weather conditions, you've got to make sure that um, your pinion has really good wet weather gear because um, sitting on the back doing nothing in wet gear, you're going to have one miserable companion. You need to think about heated vests. You need to make sure you've got good warm gloves and and good gloves for with flow through ventilation for those hot days. You know, the imperative is that your clothing is comfortable, uh, that you're sitting on the back uh, of the bike as if you're sitting in a chair, not um, crouched up on a on a stool with your knees underneath your chin. If the rider is always thinking about the screen to stop to stop wind noise and uh, and wind buffeting, well, you've got to think your pinion's going to cop that wind too. It could so be you've got to make sure that the screen. Yeah, that's right. So you've got to make sure that the the screen is looking after your pinions' uh, well-being um, as as well as yours, and have a communication system. It mm, can get yeah. awfully boring sitting on the back if you can't contribute to a conversation or listen to some music, um, or even tell the person that they're uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a punch in the kidney does work, <laughs> but, yeah, but we um, don't like a gentle it. word of. Yeah, I know the writer's not all that fussed about that approach. But to say, you know, I'm this is we're going a bit too fast or, you know, I'm cold, can we stop? My bum's gone to sleep, can we get off and have a stretch? Uh, or do you mind doing a U-turn and go back? I just saw the most amazing vista and we must take a photo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also discuss where, how far are we going to go today and uh, where should we start thinking about uh, where we're going to stop? Susan has a GPS of her own. I've got one on the front where we punch in our basic destination and she's got one on the back and she's looking at what's available around us. She's also got her her phone. She can actually look up and see what's interesting along the way. Um, and we can discuss where we're going to stop, what makes sense, where we're going to have lunch, um, work on it that way. And that, that really makes a big difference. Uh, and I should add that if our no, sure, no, no, sure, you are not getting that, sure, no way, no. <laughs> Surely, get your get yourself a GPS if you want the, one. <laughs> the problem is, Grant, I have really bad eyesight at time. Like I can't read without glasses. So Brian would have to stop so I could take my helmet off, put my glasses on, look at my GPS. Um, check my phone, then take my glasses off, put my helmet back on, and we could continue. I'm thinking that could stretch our 31 year marriage. <laughs> yes, it could. <laughs> okay, disregarding that, for those who can see adequately on the back without changing glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know Carol Duval has um, uh, uh, all those gizmos on the back, and she, she really thrives on that kind of um, communication. And obviously Susan does too. Yeah. But, you know, I think, Scott, the first thing Scott needs to do is get 
his his companion comfortable on a bike that she feels comfortable on, either on the Africa Twin with a better seat or uh, a, a new bike. And as you said, Grant, go for test rides until she finds something that, that she's comfortable in and get the basics sorted first. Go for short rides. Um yeah, go for a weekend away and plan to do four or five hundred k's. So you do a couple of hundred k's one day and three hundred k's coming back, and just get her used to being on the back of the bike. If you even when we don't ride a lot together, and then I get on the back of the bike, I get neck ache from the helmet on the yeah. first day if if we do a really long ride. So you know, it's it's yeah, you just got to be considerate. That's probably the word we're all trying to get to is considerate. Think about mm, yeah. think about your companion. If she's happy, you'll be happy. Yeah, That's a good point. Too right. yeah, and, and Grant, you also one of the things you mentioned in there was about uh, probably the biggest mistake a lot of people make is riding too fast and aggressively. Yeah. I mean, that is just so true. I know my first experience mm-hmm. riding on the back of a of a street bike when I was just a kid. The guy did exactly the same thing. My sister's boyfriend and I thought I was going to fall off the back of the bike. It's amazing that I was even interested in motorcycles afterwards. You know, because oh, that yeah. could, that type of experience can turn you off completely. Yeah, I find I exactly the same I get on the back of the bike, um, even if the rider's not going not going fast, I'm terrified. I have no control. Mm-hmm. I hate it. So you have to keep in mind that if your pillion passenger drives their own car, all of a sudden they have zero control over this really strange and terrifying thing that does all kinds of funny things and leans over and it's going to fall over any second. That's really scary. So you've got to just take it super, super easy. Uh, I remember one of the, I took a girl out for a ride many, many years ago. And the biggest compliment I've probably ever had in my life about my riding is she said, I didn't know motorcycles had automatic transmissions. (laughs) So I was riding smoothly and gently and carefully. And that was the number one thing that stood out for. It wasn't scary. It was smooth and it was comfy and it was nice. So I think that's really something to think about. When I was a teenager, all my mates had like RD250s and stuff, screaming uh-huh. two-cylinder two-strokes. And oh, if yeah. I'd miss the school bus and one of them would pick me up, you know, and, and scream through the back lanes of the village to get me back home. That was my experience, my first experience of being on the back of the bike, on these screaming bikes. And once I got a license, and, and I repeat these words today, you know, when someone gets on the back of my bike, my intention is for you to enjoy it and want to do it again. Not to scream, like scare the baby shit out of you so that you never want to get back on a bike again. So I, I think there's a lot to say for that, you know, consideration and, and riding to want your pillion to enjoy it and do it again and, and not never, ever get on the back of a bike and be, you know, out of control and vulnerable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great match, Graham. Comfortable, <laughs> involved, um, knows what they're supposed to be doing, then there's a very good chance that they can have a smile. Shirley, mm-hmm. just going back to what you were saying about the right clothing and so on, um, I don't know whether any of you guys have seen uh, this, but you see wind tunnels um, where you've got um, a rider and pillion and you see the slipstream and it hits the windscreen, whatever size it is, and it goes pretty much straight up over the top of the rider's head. Um, so the ride is pretty much protected by whatever small windscreen large there is. But that chilled wind comes straight over the top of the rider's head, hits the pillion's head, bobble, 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 and then runs straight down their back. 
So what the rider is protected from by whatever size screen it is, small or large, the pillion is getting the worst of it. So it's actually far mm. colder being a pillion. And, and people have this con- conception that um, when you're sitting behind the rider, you're going to be warmer. No, it's not true. It doesn't work like that. You're actually going to be colder there. The rider's actually benefiting from you sitting up against them because you're keeping them warm. The person on the back, the pillion's exactly. keeping the rider warm. That's yeah. right. Okay, we're, we run electric vests and have for as long as I can, as long as we've been together. And I will often have my electric vest on the lowest possible setting. And Susan will have hers cranked to the max. Okay. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, She's happy. She's toasty. She's comfortable. She's got good gear. Um, Speaking of gear, I always remember um, I was standing near a top-end riding gear stall somewhere. I'm trying to remember where it was. But anyway, I always remember this guy saying, or this woman saying to her husband, but this is so expensive. And he replied, it's cheaper than the four suits you have now and don't like. Hmm. So by good, I'm just going to ignore that. I was going to say, I think you're you're opening a can of worms here. (laughs) There is a big can of worms there. Um, Too often, she doesn't ride that much, so she doesn't need good gear. She can just use cheaper stuff. No, she needs really good gear that she really likes, that fits her really well, and that's not easy. So. Yeah, that's the thing. Riding gear for women, you can get a bit fair bit now. My riding gear is is um, just. Men's gear and it mm. needs updating because it just it doesn't fit in the right places. Mm-hmm. But it's good in that it's got flow through ventilation and things like that. Which when last time we upgraded the gear, women's gear didn't have that that sort of stuff, and we were going away somewhere where we knew it was going to be hot and cold. So I needed that flow through ventilation. Just going back to what Grant said about best compliment he ever had about his riding. I had a Swedish friend who came over. And uh, this one, I lived in England and we went out for a ride on the Harley and I had this regular route that I used to ride anyway. And it kind of uh, hugged these uh, little twi- uh, twisty roads that were the side of, side of a, a river and then came back along a faster road. And I don't know what it was. It was probably about a, a 50 minute, 30 mile round trip. And so she sat in the back of the Harley and I took her for this ride. And uh, We got back to mine and uh, she said, you ride like a DJ. You kind of speed it up and then you slow it down and you speed it up again. <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> well, that's keeping it, the, the pillion entertained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think she started to smoke before we got on the bike, but yeah, but she enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add one more thing on to the end of all of this discussion. Um, work for the rider, work on your own skills. And be sure you're comfortable with a big loaded bike. You can even take a course with a passenger so you both work together better. Make sure so that she feels like she's an active participant on the bike. The more she knows about what's going on, what you're doing and why, and how she can help or hinder, the better. It makes it feel more like a team. You know what she's going to do. She knows what you're doing and why you're doing it and what she needs to do. So work out, work on that. And who knows? It might whet her interest in riding herself, but mainly... Don't push her into riding herself. If she wants to, let her make that decision herself. Mm, yeah. yeah. With that course that you're talking about where you can go, what do they, they supply a pillion or do you have to bring your own? Bring your own. Because if they supplied it, it wouldn't be so bad, but I'd hate to be that person. The point is to work as a team, to learn how to work as a team, oh, and to, right. for both to understand what the other's job is. Mm. 
getting on and off a bike for a PN can be a bit tricky too and, and oh, for, yeah. for a rider. And um, Shell and I have worked out a system where she won't get on the bike until I'm settled and I actually put my left arm up as a, a visual indicator to her that I'm ready to, for her to get on the bike because sometimes you, you, you can be misheard through a helmet and all the rest of it. So we use like a visual signal all the time. People look at us and say, oh, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a friend who yeah. whose relationship um, broke down when his girlfriend got on the bike when he wasn't ready and the bike fell over and things got damaged. Yeah. So um, it's something that we've we've worked at to make sure that I never get on or off the bike until I know Brian's got the bike and it's stable. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I've Absolutely. seen uh, somebody come into a gas station and um, get off their bike. The pillion sits on their bike. They fuel it up. They go in and pay. The pillion still sits on the bike. They come out. They get back on the bike and they ride away. The pillion just looks so comfortable. They were not getting off for anything. Wow, must have been on a I, I hate sitting on the bike on my own. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. loathe it. Yeah, if Brian's got it on the side stand and says, "You're right, no, I'm off." Much rather mm-hmm. standing up next to it. Just, just a funny little story. We we're going across the Nullarbor, and I had a friend who had um, a wired um, audio system for his wife on the back. <laughs> and uh, we pulled in for fuel and uh, we got fuel and no dramas and Frank gets on the bike and Philomena, his wife, um, plugs in her um, audio system into the bike, which is a wired system, you know, wind it in. And uh, Frank decided to ride off without the pig on it. And she's running <laughs> on beside the bike, hooked up. <laughs> That's horrible. Shouldn't be laughing yeah. at that. They gave up riding together too. Yeah. yeah. Communication. <laughs> so what's the moral to that story? Get a wireless communication system? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just work out whether your wife's on the back of the bike before you take off. I, don't know. Yeah. I would have noticed if Susan wasn't on the back. I mean, how often does that happen? You know, I, I got down the road 20 minutes and I realized, oh, yeah, I forgot my wife. I'm going to go think back. Once, <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I think well, after it's happened once, you don't got a wife anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone uh, have anything else to add to this before we wrap it up? Okay. On, on the discussion for GPSs, you can throw in, if there's a difference between what the two GPSs say, hers wins. I just do what I'm told. Ah. Bringing that um, back to the original or the initial uh, topic we talked about, if you had a shaft and a chain drive, then one could go one way and one could go the other. Uh, <laughs> that's right, Scott, uh, great questions and thank you very much for oh, that. Yeah. Well, back on the GPS, and just one last point too. Um, Susan has a pocket on the on the top of the saddlebag that she can put the GPS into, but the GPS is in a waterproof pouch on a cord that won't reach the ground. We lost a few map pouches before we put them on strings. You know, so you tuck it away somewhere safe, and 50 miles later, it's not there anymore. So same with the GPS; it's in a cord, in a pouch, on a cord. And it's stashed away into the pocket, which sits on the side, on the top of the saddlebag. It makes it a lot easier. I'm telling you now, it's not going to happen, so <laughs> oh, it's irrelevant. And if you're talking about map pouches on the back of the rider's jacket. Yeah. Yeah. How is Brian going to stand on his head or lie on his side so I can work out which way we're going on the map? <laughs> lean over, Brian. Lean over. No more. More. No, back the other way. Yeah. I always remember we were somewhere heading, I think it was in Baja or something, um, heading down the road. And Susan had a map at that time, of course. And 
she said, okay, it's a left turn up ahead. Mm, I'd looked at the map before. No, nah, it's not a left. It's a right. It's a left. I'm, I'm looking at it. It's, it's, we're going down the road, and it's a left turn. I thought for a moment. I said, turn the map upside down, dear. South. We're heading south, not north. <laughs> See, it's that patronizing deer at the end of that sentence. <laughs> yeah, I think you're fine. She's laughing in the background it. here. <laughs> I'm going to change the subject very, very quickly before somebody digs himself a deeper hole. Mm. Yep. Um, I mentioned very briefly that um, several hand holding on positions for the pillion passer make makes a difference. Mm. Um, at one time, saddles always used to have a strap across the middle for the pillion passenger to be holding on to. Most modern saddles don't have that strap anymore, do they? None of them do. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So replicate it because that is a fantastic place for a pillion passenger to be holding on to um, as an alternative to hanging on to straps or whatever you put into place at the sides. And just that change of body position makes a massive difference for a pillion passenger. And it's also a warmer from the hands point of view. Mm -hmm. I'll disagree with that. Those straps are too flexible. They're not solid. Well, if you make your own. uh, Yeah, exactly. Make your own. Uh, yeah. we we use them all the time Grant and actually we've got BMW straps um, mm-hmm. and that's what we've made them out of and there's just enough oh, room to get your the fingers of your gloves underneath and yeah. that's perfect it works really nicely just absolutely simple lift up the saddle mm-hmm. loop one round job done yeah. well, I actually don't hang on yeah Susan doesn't hang on either wow we're no. going really fast I just put my I just put my hands on my on my knees mm-hmm. um if it's cold, I make Brian stand up and I put my hands on the seat and he sits on them, so I get warm hands. <laughs> but I find because the seat on the GS is so comfortable, I can grip on with my thighs if we're going to go really fast. Oh, look, if we're going to go really fast, I'm too busy punching him in the kidneys to hang on to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Susan does, does like that hang on. Does it shake your head? Could a rider I am with a pillion that she doesn't have to hang on? Mm-hmm. And I can sleep and I do yes. sleep. Galena falls asleep on the back and I constantly get head butted every time I change gear. That's how I know she's sleeping. I used to to get that with my my son. I I think I might have told you guys this before and I'm sorry if I did, but I would pick him up at night. He was working at this job where he'd he'd work late and I'd pick him up and he would sit on the back of the bike and then after a few minutes, I'd feel that thump on the the back of my helmet as he fell asleep and I would say, Pete, you know, like sort of give him the elbow and, and to wake him up. Of course, he'd always claim he never fell asleep, but uh, you know right away. I'm, of course, yeah. worried about him falling off. Yeah. When I traveled down through Africa off. with um, Mike and Sally to begin with, and um, so Sally's behind Mike, and we were on some of the gnarliest dirt roads that I've ever ridden, and Sally would be fast asleep on the back of the bike, and she'd be leaning out, sort of 15 degrees out from the from the back, and she'd be just fast asleep, and you'd see her head bouncing up and down with the potholes, and she'd just be zedding away. How Mike wrote with that. <laughs> That'd yeah, be a priceless brilliant. video. <laughs> Wouldn't it? One more thing on the uh, giving Pillion something to do. Well, it's a little bit off topic, but not totally. Um, I, I got given a Revit suit, and I used it when I went down through Mexico. Uh, one day it was laying on the floor in my room. I was riding alone, of course, and it's got that pouch at the back. And so I took a photograph of it and I put on the Facebook, uh, the Horizons Unlimited Facebook thing, you know, what do you put in your pouch? 
And the general, the general response was nothing you don't want surgically removed. <laughs> but what one person said, which I thought was quite useful, not that I've applied it yet, um, is that uh, they put their change in, the coins in it, and then the pillion um, is able to pick out the coins at the tolls to give the right money. And I thought, well, what a really good use, you know. It gives the pillion something to do. It gets rid of your small change. It makes your toll crossings efficient. And it gives that big, useless pocket at the back of your jacket a really useful function. Uh, so I thought that was quite a good suggestion. Mm, that's yeah. good. Yeah, Snacks guess- are also good stored there. Yep. Yeah, I suppose so. Not <laughs> If you can reach it with your clutch hand if you ride solo, yeah. Ah, the dog. <laughs> <laughs> the big question we should be answering is where do you keep your hand cleaner nowadays while you're riding? Is it in uh, one of those easy to access pump bottles, one of the squeeze tubes in your pocket? That's a tough one. We'll save that one for another episode. Yeah, let's. let's. <laughs> I was about to tell you. I was about to tell you where it was I and where you, I keep it, Jim. I heard you inhale, but go ahead, Brian. Where are you putting it? No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I have a feeling we'll be discussing COVID for a long time so we can do it next month without any fear that there's no need for hand sanitizer anymore. Yeah, well, let's hope not. But anyway, Mm. let's get into plugs. Graham, what do you have for plugs? Oh, me? Right, okay. Um, Well, totally spontaneous, really. Um, Postage overseas has become prohibitive. It's absolutely ridiculous. People are paying more for postage than they are for books. It's obviously beyond my control. It's really, really frustrating. And <laughs> honestly, it's cheaper to buy a second-hand Kindle off of eBay and get an e-book than it is to get a book posted to you from Australia. Um, people are writing to me all the time about this. Um, and in actual fact, it's cheaper. <laughs> obviously, it sounds like a, a, a ploy, but it is cheaper if you buy all three because then it's a, over a certain weight. So uh, then I can choose a different courier and it actually works out cheaper. And what I'm doing is throwing in an audio book because they don't weigh much. So people buy all three books. It's a cost-efficient way of beating the excessive postage costs at the moment and they get free audio book. But the other thing that Sam told me to tell you is that I should mention um, Mad Dog, not Mad Dog, what they call, uh, what's my publisher called? Road Dog. Um, Road Dog, Road Dog Publishing. Uh, because if you're in America, um, you don't have to pay all that excessive postage. You can get it. You can get it in America. I keep forgetting that. So if you go to Road Dog Publishing, or I think advertise on Adventure Road Radio. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll make sure there's a link um, in the uh, in the notes. So if you're in America, you can go to Road Dog Publishing and buy copies of my first three books without having the excessive postage costs. And of course, option number three is the electronic thing. So you can download an audio book, you can download an ebook, and you can avoid all the postage costs um, and do it that way. So all I'm really telling you is a few ways of overcoming the, obviously I want to sell physical books and you want to have physical books, but at the moment, I don't blame anybody for not buying them because the postage is a killer. Hopefully that will all change. Um, And that's the end of that. So that's my plug. Oh, and if so, really, the only alternative to that is surface mail, uh, which is a bit cheaper. So order now for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, too right. Order now for Christmas 2021. Yeah. Okay. Um, Grant, what do you have for plugs? 
Well, the achievable dream, of course, as always. Um, unfortunately, we can't talk too much about events, but if you're in South Africa, the South Africa event is on, so check that out. Um, lots to see there. They're still planning on going ahead, and they'll be taking all kinds of socially distancing and masks and all that kind of stuff as appropriate. Uh, so that event is happening. But the Achievable Dream is available for Christmas, if you want, for download. Uh, Vimeo.com slash Horizons Unlimited. Are you, Grant, are you doing calendars this year? Next year? No. Next year. You're not? No. Why not? Cost. Very simple. The hmm. former calendars that we were doing were sponsored by Touratech, who got the printing done for us at a ridiculously cheap price. The, their printer that printed their two-inch thick, three-inch thick catalog. So we got a really smoking deal on that. And then Touratech paid to ship large quantities to our distributor in Australia, in the U.S., in Canada, and in Europe. So that cut the cost of shipping down considerably. Um, and, of course, the initial cost of the calendars were much, much cheaper. So if we are looking at it now with the current information we have, the calendar would be in the $40 range plus... God knows how much it is, as you've discovered, to ship across to another continent. It's just way too expensive. We can't do it. So well, if anybody out there has this to advertise their books on every month and pay for the advertising, would that reduce it? Well, that would reduce it, yes. Well, yeah. If only you knew some authors. Ah, I can't think of any offhand. <laughs> you need to think about this one a bit seriously here, Grant. Yes. Well, we probably should do that. Okay. The point has been raised. And I'm open to any other authors out there listening or anybody that would like to advertise on a calendar. Talk to me. Let's see what we can come up with. We would yeah, love to do it. I get people asking me all the time. Because those characters are always just How many of us are there on Raw? Six. So that means we each get a photo of ourselves twice. In a summer outfit, in a winter outfit. There you go. <laughs> no, we'd be no, happy no, to do that. If anybody's interested, please contact me, let me know, and we'll see what we can work out for next year. It's not going to happen this year. It's too late. But for next year, yes, let's do something. Okay. Sam, how about you? Well, mine's a little bit of a follow-on from Graham's comment because, of course, you know, this whole business with um, the, the number of aeroplanes flying um, having decreased so dramatically and therefore costs going up and so on, it's really, really hurting. Um, but I have a, a stroke of um, good news for um, listeners in the United States. Well, at least I hope it's good news. Um, my everyday um, ad adventure long sleeve motorcycle travel T-shirts are now available in the USA as well as in Europe. And that means that you don't have to pay those stupid postage costs for items coming from the UK across. And if you check the show notes, you'll see that there are two links, um, the usual one for the UK and mainland Europe and now the USA too. And the shirt's posted out to you from friends in Virginia who very kindly said, yeah, we'll do this for you. So what are the T-shirts about? Well, the blend of yarns give an incredibly soft feel. And it actually took me two years to find T-shirts and testing until I found this T-shirt that does this. And they stay really soft, even with repeat washing. And they pack down really small and the creases drop out fast, actually within minutes. And when you wash them, they dry amazingly quickly. So they make them fantastic for motorcycle traveling and so on. And in winter, they're a really good base layer because they they wick amazingly well. Um, and again, you know, when you're off the
the bikes and their out and about um, t-shirts. And they got this wonderful overloaded motorcycle cartoon that just completely takes the mick out of us all. Um, if you haven't seen that cartoon, well, um, yeah, have a look on my website, you'll see them. But um, yeah, so um, the, the links will be in the show notes. And um, the feedback from everybody so far, and I mean everybody, has been absolutely fantastic on these because they do what I'm claiming they do. So, um, yeah, have a look. And thanks very much to my friends in Virginia who have taken on board doing this. I'm very grateful. Cheers. Bloody hell, Sam, they sound like the T-shirt equivalent of your fantasy tank bag. <laughs> it slices, it dices, you can they fold it, you are. can bend it, you can push it down, you can lift it up. Graham, I should send you one of these because you will you will be cynical no more. You will go, yeah, all right. I know what you're talking about. And actually, just while we're going sideways, um, I have a stroke of luck in that I've managed to get all of my books um, with an organization called the Book Depository. And that means that um, they're available worldwide um, with um, free delivery. So that's the Book Depository. If you do a, um, a Google search for Sam Manicum, the Book Depository, then they'll pop up. And um, I'm incredibly lucky with able being to set that up. So, yeah, have a look. Shirley, what have you got? Um, our um, books you can always get as ebooks and through Amazon and stuff. We do print on demand, so the postage isn't quite such an issue. But Graham, I went on to try and get your new book, and I could get the ebook, which is what I'm going to do for a reasonable price. And to get a real book, it was ninety five dollars <sighs> Australian. Oh no! Why is crazy? It's yeah. I mean, it, honestly, that's just insane. insane. It goes up every week, and I get my yeah, IT well, man. Yeah. Every time I get an order come through, it's more than it was the week before on postage. So yeah. every week I lose because yeah. I have to, you know, honour that. And I get my IT man to put the price up on the website, and it's just—I mean, it's just ridiculous. Who's going to pay that? I mean. Well, we've got we do deals for uh, US and uh, UK listeners of Raw who go onto our website and buy our books, but you've just got to be patient because even when I pop them in airmail, uh, as Sam said, there's so few flights leaving anywhere at the moment. Um, they're taking weeks to get there, so it's all a bit disheartening. But you can always get the eBooks and gosh, just go back and listen to previous episodes of Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Too right. And then you won't not. need to read the book because all the stories we've told. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You'll have enough of our voices by then. That's the last thing you want. Brian, how about you? Uh, no, look, I really don't have a plug other than to say to everyone in these COVID times, uh, particularly here in Australia, we've done a great job here in Victoria. We had over 700 people die and it looked like it was going to go through the roof like it has done everywhere else. And through lockdowns, people doing the right things, staying home um, and all that, we got it down to one the day before and zero yesterday. That's wow. cases. Wow. cases. Wow. And it really has been really hard on people. And I know my riding mates, particularly in Melbourne, who can't get out, I've been driving them mad with um, photos of um, me travelling around on different bikes in country Victoria. But I'm gated into Victoria. It's not good enough. I want to get out. But seriously, um, you know, I, I really feel for the people, particularly in the States, you know, 220,000 deaths, that's just crazy. And uh, I really feel sorry for them. But, you know, everybody here has done the right thing and sooner or later we'll be able to get out. So here's hoping we can get out and travel. Touch wood, Brian. Yep, hopefully soon. 
right. Thank you very much, everyone. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. 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 Thanks, team. Cheers, boys. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of audiobooks and written books that chronicle his journeys. Uh, he also has uh, t-shirts and other things that he sells on his website at grahamfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. just occurred to me you may be coming in and listening to raw first and you don't know about adventure rider radio if that's the case you need to search for adventure rider radio anywhere you find podcasts it's our weekly show that we do um raw is sort of a spin-off off of that anyway drop by our website as well adventure rider radio.com